welcome to a very, very, very special podcast. Podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, and also does a monthly Patreon-only episode for all five dollar above patrons. But this here is something special. For behold, we bring you tidings of great joy, which is to all people. I am your host Jeff, better known as Wendy Fish, and I'm your other host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our first ever holiday special episode entitled How Much of the Winds of Winter and a Dream of Spring Did Game of Thrones Spoil? In which Joanna, Emmett, and I will analyze one of the most hotly debated topics of all. Jeff, Joanna's here? Uh, yeah, did, did, I didn't mention that. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, Joanna's here. We are thrilled to say that uh, Senior Vanity Fair correspondent and frequent podcaster of so many fantastic podcasts, Joanna Robinson, is here and joins us today. Hi, Joanna. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I cannot wait to expose how little I know about the book sometimes. <laughs> That's not true. I mean, like, I I remember I first listened to Storm of Spoilers around season five, and I was impressed by the amount of knowledge that that you guys had, both about the books and the show. And it became my one of my favorite podcasts. In fact, my favorite podcast during season five and season six. And I stopped listening during season seven because you guys got a little bit beyond where I was. I was trying to stay spoiler free for season seven. I'm sorry. Oh, God. We know we know too much all the time. It's true. So but we try to keep things separated. We've got a calm section and a storm section. One has a lot of spoilers. One doesn't. But I really respect anyone who's like, you know what? I'm just not going to not going to play with fire this year. It's a heavy curse to know too much for sure. And uh, yeah, I've definitely been loving your stuff on Game of Thrones lately about the looking through the scripts for previous seasons and the stuff you're writing about the the line in the rose, the purple wedding episode and how that really differs from script to page. I thought that was a great breakdown. So I'm definitely looking looking forward to reading more of it as we get finally towards season eight itself after waiting 80-ish years for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should say, you know, anyone who's read those uh, posts, by the way, you can go to the Writers Guild of America library in LA yourself. There's some very nice librarians there, and they will give you an iPad, and on it will be all the scripts. Not all the scripts. Many, many <laughs> scripts, a lot of which are not online. I was very surprised really? that this, yeah, like, hmm. it's not, it's never, a lot of them have never been online, as far as I know. Maybe they're on the, like, the dark web, but uh, not easily <laughs> found. And you can go and peruse them, and there's also some, like, physical scripts there that you can uh, pour through as well. So it's a great resource. It's very cool. So, so I, I have a question for you. Of the scripts that you saw, which one was your favorite and which one was your least favorite? I mean, like the later season seven scripts are hard to read um, because it's not just because, you know, like why so many have had this really fratty, casual style between their dialogue. Um, but I think it's just because they have so much shorthand. Like the, the the instructions between the dialogue are so short and the stuff that's there is mostly just like to crack the actors up, I think. And so you're not getting any added enriching information because I think they just all know what they're doing so much at this point that they don't feel the need to describe what, you know, what, what everything is going to look like. Cause they just okay. know. And, and like something that I noted in one of my posts is that, you know, Weiss and Benny F will just throw in a, a reference to someone who works on the show, like Michelle Clapton in, in um, costumes or Deborah Riley in production design and just say like, Oh, fabulous. Michelle like Clapton costume, blah, blah. You know, they don't have to describe it. They just like, <laughs> know that Michelle Clapton's going to design something amazing and they don't have to worry about it versus like the early stuff you know one post that I haven't gotten up yet is a comparison from the uh, between the original Game of Thrones pilot and what actually made it to air there's a script in the library there that um, is the is the script that 
made it to air of the pilot and underlined in it are is all the things that they kept from the original pilot that they shot and basically almost entirely scrapped. And it's mostly like exterior shots and that sort of stuff. There's just like a few scenes that they kept. But to look at what they kept and what they didn't and what the original intention of that pilot, which is never I think even Kit Harrington has said he's never seen it. Like they're they're huh. keeping that that video on lockdown. It is is pretty fascinating, I think, for for th- fans of the book and the show. Yeah, that's really interesting. Obviously, when you think about seasons four through six, when they're adapting some parts of A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, which are very long and, as many people have said, kind of unfilmable books, a lot of the story <laughs> becomes about what you cut and what you slim down on. But I'd never thought about that kind of once you get past that and you get to season seven, especially where they're really not work- working from the template of the published books, it your reference point becomes the show itself and you have those more kind of casual in-jokes and uh, it's just kind of the show's self-contained universe at that point. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I try not to be such a jerk about it, but I mean, the the little in-jokes make me roll my eyes, uh, (laughs) especially when you compare it to that that line line in the Rose script that George R. R. Martin wrote, which, you know, by my understanding is a very early script that he wrote and I think he himself revised it later you know Mm, he is taking credit for dialogue that was later in the episode that wasn't in that early script but the description i mean it's like reading a lost chapter or lost several chapters from the book basically because he just like goes in such incredible detail between the dialogue and you know i tried to pull like my my post on it was very long it was originally i think a thousand words longer (laughs) and i think you know your your listeners and and your you know all you people on the Reddit like would have a field day going over every single line, which I can't yes. do in my capacity. You know what I mean? So hopefully someone will, will go into the library and do that. But um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really fascinating read that, that one. And that one, as I mentioned, I think in my post is 20 pages longer than your average Game of Thrones script and even longer than your average season seven script, even though the season seven run times were longer, the scripts are really slim because it's just like short dialogue and even shorter directions in between. So so you're saying that George R. Barton wrote longer than he even expected, than the showrunners wanted, and that doesn't seem anything at all like the George R. R. Martin that we know that wrote, you know, originally thought of Song of Ice and Fire would be three books, and now it's seven books now. So. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shocked, frankly. Right? Um, shocked. No, my favorite, my favorite part of that, sorry, and then and then we can move on to what we actually want to talk about, but my favorite, <laughs> my favorite part of that is that... Um, I, it like didn't occur to me until the second time reading it through. I was like, why did they give George an episode that has two feasts in it? Like, why did they do that? They should have known better. He's just going to go yawn on and on and on about like the various courses and everything that's happening there. So, you know, that was their that was their first mistake, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's the series essays that, that you've written so far have been fantastic. And I can't wait to see the all the more episodes that you cover and all the more scripts you do. So we're looking forward to that. And uh, I'm also I'm super looking forward to the uh, the original pilot one, too. I think I've seen I, I know that there's some images floating around about from from the pilot that they shot. For instance, there's one of George R. R. Martin as a um, Pentoshi like merchant or something. Yeah. like that, if I'm not mistaken mm-hmm. with the huge hat from that was filmed in like 2009. So when he when he came to uh, Malta, I, I want to say. When he filmed that, so that's uh, something I'm really eager and excited to read when it comes out. When is that coming out exactly? Um, when is this episode going up? <laughs> this will come out on the 21st of December. Then it will already be up on ReadyFair.com. Nice. Um, but yeah, the uh, the I think the only extended footage from the pilot that survived was that flashback flashback to uh, the Mad King Ares burning um, the Stark family because they used it in a promo. Interesting. And 
And so you can find that footage. It's not that long, but it's like, it's a few seconds. And then, yeah, there's that photo of George. And I think there's not much else visually other than like the scenes that eventually made it into the pilot, like the Roz Tyrion scene. That's, you can tell because yes. the wigs are different and stuff like that. So is that, is that, is that why you brought me here today to yawn yes. on and on about my own work? Or we, did you we, <laughs> talk about absolutely. something else? We, we, we could, we could talk about your work all day long and just scrap this episode, but, but no, uh, we, we really appreciate you coming on and I think we're going to have a lot of fun doing this. Um, just our spoiler warning was talking about in all of our episodes. We'll be talking about all published books as the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show, anything and everything. Now, just for a very, very quick advertisement plug, normally this is the type of monthly episode that you'd be getting on our Patreon for our $5 and above month patrons, but we want to do something special for you all for this holiday season because, you know, you guys have made our year pretty terrific and we wanted to do this episode as kind of thanks to everyone. And at the same time, we understand that not all of you want or are able to join our Patreon and that's totally fine. I mean, like, we really appreciate your ears all the same. But if you'd like to join up and see our similar episodes this one, check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. For all of you who have sat there thinking we don't talk nearly enough about Stannis or Volantis <laughs> or Barristan or the Winds of Winter on social media, come on over to the Patreon and check out our special episodes on those subjects and more. But enough about that. This is our holiday gift to you all, so let's delve into it. I thought we could uh, start by just ranking the seasons of the TV show as we see them. There's uh, certainly room enough to get me and Jeff to fight over something, which we so rarely do to the dismay of our listening audience. Um so, me personally, my favorite season of the show, I kind of sentimentally have to go with season one. I've been rewatching mm. it a bit lately. Wrong, and part but of it is, Part of it is... <laughs> exactly. Already. Already, folks. Part of it is just like, aw, oh, baby Alfie Allen. Aw, oh, baby Maisie Williams. Coming uh-huh. back to it after a lot of years, there's just a lot of, a lot of emotions caught up in the actors specifically and watching them find their feet, but... I kind of like how low their budget was. I think they had to do some kind of ingenious things to get around the fact that they didn't really have as much money as they would have in later seasons. I like how streamlined and structured it is. I really like uh, the fact that they let Ned go up against Jamie with a sword, that they let him save Arya's life during his execution. There were you know, some changes in the later seasons that made me scratch my head, but <laughs> even the little changes they were making in season one, it feels like it enhances it for me more than anything. So I'd probably mm. put that number one. Season three is close behind. That has just a lot of the great set pieces, like the Red Wedding and a lot of the you Dany freeing the slaves and a lot of the stuff that occupies the first half of A Storm of Swords, which for a lot of people is the best part of the series. Uh, season six after that is probably my favorite of the most recent mm. seasons. Again, a lot of great spectacle there. Cersei and the Wildfire, of course, is a classic. Uh, you've got some really important stuff with John and his arc in that season. After that, tear down from that would be like seasons four and seven, which I think had some really great stuff mixed with some weird storytelling decisions <laughs> in which they weren't quite, I think, getting the threads together. And then at the bottom, I'd probably put like seasons two and five, which is where I would say yeah. that the bad material starts to outweigh the good a little bit, at least sometimes. What about you, Jeff? Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, you're wrong. <laughs> Uh, all is right, that all? Okay, yeah, good. Thanks yeah. for listening. No, I, uh, um, for me, it, my, my ranking goes three. Season three, I think, is the best. I mean, actually, I don't think it's the best. It is objectively the best season of Game of Thrones mm-hmm. currently in existence. You got Jamie and the bat, Jamie and Brienne in the bathtub. You've got all the, you got the Red Wedding. You've got the Sandra Aria material. Um, I mean, you've got some weird stuff too. Don't get me wrong. Season three is not perfect. The ending scene with Daenerys is a um, interesting scene. We'll just call it that. Uh, <laughs> Even worse than the script, if you can believe it, if if you, if you read Joanna's post. 
Yes, that's very true. Is season three the one with Celise and her weird sci-fi fertility babies? Is yes. that season three? Yeah. Yes. I half love and half hate that part. So I love yeah, it. Yes, I'm course. all bored. Uh, for me, then I would go season one. So I'm actually the exact reverse of Emmett. He's one and three. I'm three, one, and then four, two, six, seven, and five, I think is mm. how I would go. Uh, my favorite episode of, of the entire series is Blackwater. I think that's objectively yeah. the best Game of Thrones episode. Agreed. I mean, there's there's no better ones. I mean, there's great episodes. Don't get me wrong. Uh, now as watch has ended is probably my second favorite one. Um, and then after that, it kind of, I don't know, I have to like kind of figure out some of the, my other ones down there. There's there's great individual scenes, I think. One of the things I think is like a, a big thing, and, it, and this is not intended, but it will sound like a criticism of later Game of Thrones seasons, and that there's fantastic individual scenes in the later seasons, especially, but as a whole, I like the later seasons as opposed to love them. And I love the earlier seasons, even though some of the individual scenes don't work out near some sometimes nearly as well. But that is that is that is my ranking. Joanna, what is your ranking? Uh, you guys are absolutely speaking my language, except I'm going to like really become unpopular with you quickly <laughs> right at the start, uh, oh which is say season two is actually my favorite. Interesting. Uh, really? I, agree with, right. I agree with Jeff about Blackwater, but like here, here's season two, best season of the show, and here's why. Um, I think the, at his best, the best character on the show is Tyrion Lannister, and I think season two with him uh, and all the pal- palace intrigue and all of the hand stuff that he gets to do in season two is my favorite Tyrion stuff. So that's that's great. And then in terms of the, sh- you know, like we we could talk forever about the departures the show takes from the books that we like and the departure the show takes from the books that we don't like. But I think the most successful departure the show takes from the books, at least in the early seasons, is the Arya and Tywin stuff at Harrenhal. That's a show invention, but it's like it's a brilliant show invention. Yep, uh, a brilliant way to make that plotline work, streamline it, make it work, give two performers, both young and old, like a lot of great material to work with. So. That's why I love season two. Uh, and then it's sort of like a tie between three and one. Like, I agree with both of you. You're both of your points for why those are the best seasons. So three and one are kind of tied for me. I especially love what uh, Emmett said about, you know, the budgetary restraints of season one. I always think yeah. about them, them like not having the budget to do a battle. So they just knock Tyrion out <laughs> and wake him up at the end. And that's that, you know. Um mm-hmm. And then it goes four and then six and seven. And then literally anything they do in season eight, it could be like a like a footage of a garbage fire. I don't care. And then after that, season five. So wow. that's how I feel about season five of Game of Thrones. Well said. Well said. I think, yeah, we find broad agreement in season five is the the worst season of the show. So, I mean, I guess we can we can leave leave from there. But I mean, it, it's hard because season five is season five is the like what Emma was talking about earlier and that they were trying to adapt two massive books of material from George R. R. Martin into basically a season with maybe some scattered shots and scenes in season six and a few in season four. But season five has definitely suffered from, well, it suffered from two things. One, obviously, uh, George's material is not very easy to adapt. And then the second thing is that they decided it would only be one season worth of adaptation for two books, which is something that they didn't do for previous seasons. And I mean, Storm of Swords was basically two seasons of material. And, you know, season five was adapting 2,500 pages worth of material in one season. So it didn't necessarily work out for the best. Although individual scenes are great. I mean, Cersei's Walk is fantastic. Hard Home, which is a completely invented show. Love uh, Hard scene. Home. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, it's a, I mean, it's probably more top five episodes for me, but still, yeah, yeah. season five just 
kind of suffers from that. Um, from that adaptation side of it. Season five, I think like I think my issue with season five, and this is me sort of extrapolating based on, you know, specifically some of the like script detective work that I've been doing uh-huh. recently is season five is really I feel like when they broke from George in such a significant way, um, you know, he still wrote for them in season four and then season five, you know, he says he stopped writing to focus on wins. But I think um, I think what we see is them them knowing the ending, them feeling like uh, they know better than George how to tell the story, which is like true in some regards, you know, because at least they're finishing it and and not <laughs> wow. true in other regards. And I mean, like George will finish it, but like they're, you know, they're wrapping it up. And, and that's when they just start slashing things yeah. to to pare it down. I understand the need to slash things, but like, I mean, one almost wishes that they had had the whole plan from the very beginning. So then like, I don't know, maybe they don't go to Dorne at all. So then you don't like have to like go to Dorne and then, you know, smother Dorne, you know, like all of all of that. Like, you know, if they were going to slash, I think they need to know earlier what they needed to keep and what they didn't. But in season five, in season four to a certain degree, and then season five to a major degree, they're really working towards an ending Mm -hmm. and in that way you get these collisions of plots I mean and and to me the ultimate example is you know what happens with Sansa which I just is like really hard for me to get over so I know that that was their plan from like season two but it's just I think it's a really poor adaptive choice like it's like it's a smart on paper adaptive choice and it's like a and like emotionally uh, vacant choice at the same time and so it's just like that's why that I have so much trouble with that season well, I mean, that yeah. the, the thing that just kind of like kills me is that when they were interviewed, when I think it was Cogman, Benioff and Weiss were interviewed and right after that Sansa scene from season five, they said, oh, it had always been our, our plan from season two to have Sansa Stark go north instead of have Jane Poole, who's the character from who goes and marries Ramsay in A Dance with Dragons. But then, you know, to again, re- reference your, your most recent post in Vanity Fair, George did he actually know that or and because he seems to have indicated that Ramsay was going to marry Arya, which is what, you know, sort of the plot is in, in A Dance with Dragons that, you know, becomes it's actually fake Arya. And, and as listeners of the show probably will know, but I, I do kind of wonder like what they're how much they told George about how they were going to adapt his material, because if they were going back in like 2011, 2012, when they're writing season two and coming to the idea that it was they were going to send Sansa north instead of Arya. Maybe they should have told George. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily disrespectful, but at the same time, it's kind of a head scratching moment from a kind of creator to creator vantage point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, com- yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you. Oh, I was I was going to say I completely agree that while they had it to obviously make some changes and slim some slim some things down, it didn't seem particularly artful with what they chose to slim down and how they chose to slim it. Yeah. I completely understand that they were never going to do Quentin or the Young Griff storyline, and that Euron was never going to be the way he is in the books, much to my dismay. <laughs> but but Dorne in the books, and I'm far from the first person to say this, is just designed for HBO. Like, you literally have Ariane doing sex position scenes. It's a big, <laughs> vivid, cinematic storyline with a lot of, you know, dramatic moments and, and fun background characters and... If, I don't understand why you wouldn't at least try to adapt a version of that storyline, but yeah, what's, what, what they ended up going with, you wish they'd just not done it at all. So yeah, yeah that's for, hard to get around for season five where it just started to seem like almost a mess. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think they got like, it feels slightly more controlled in six and seven, even though I have my own like yeah. issues with six and seven, it just feels more controlled than season five does. Um, As you say with Ariane, like the other thing that I think about all the time when I think about them cutting that plot is that 
I feel like around season four or five is, you know, well, five especially is when they started getting a bad reputation from both critics and some fans as like, you know, allowing indulging in some of the more misogynistic aspects of of the show um and then i think they hard course corrected by being by being like in season six and it just felt so ham-fisted in season six being like this show's about women in power and they're so powerful and blah blah blah. and it just felt such like a like you know they've got all all guys writing on the show it just felt like such a juvenile depiction of female power whereas like arianne in the books i think is such like in um, I don't want to say effortless, but just like a just a more centered version of of female power, and you know, versus like I don't know, bad pussy or whatever you want to call it. So <laughs> it's just it's 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 hard to see those changes. And I there's a lot that I do love about um about the differences that you know that have made it onto to the screen. And I never want to say otherwise, but yeah, as you say, season five a, a mess, and then it gets gets a little tighter after that. But all this talk about earlier seasons kind of just puts off the inevitable que- question, which is how did the later seasons uh, stack up vis-a-vis the books? The big question of the night, did Game of Thrones spoil the Winds of Winter or a Dream of Spring? Yeah, I, I think there's really four options out there. And there might be more, but I think these are, broadly speaking, what we'll be have in stores. So option one, most of what we saw in Game of Thrones is going to occur in the Winds of Winter and a Dream of Spring. Option two, Game of Thrones spoiled some of the plot for The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring, but not everything. Option three, there are a few things they spoiled, but really not a whole lot. And then option four, they spoiled nothing or very little beyond what they've explicitly confirmed, either George or David, Benioff or Dan Weiss, Brian Cogman, the other writers and people in the know and might have said, as things that are happening to be confirmed in the books. For my, in my perspective, I'm of a divided mind, really. I mean, in broad strokes, in broad strokes, in broad strokes, I think season six spoiled a few things, but it wasn't that much. Season seven, as we're getting closer to the end game, spoiled some of the plot for the end of the Winds of Winter and the start of A Dream of Spring. And, you know, season eight is, I mean, we know from what they've said, uh, what David Benioff and Dead Weiss have said, they know the ending in broad strokes because George told them back in 2013. So I at least think that season eight will likely mirror the end states and fates that George has planned for A Dream of Spring and for his characters. But I really, really think that the plot pathways that the show charts to get there is going to be vastly, vastly different. I mean, George, the showrunners, and even my wife, have, who has never read the books or watched the show, says that things are going to be different between the show and the books. And really, I'm not going to disagree with my wife, especially on, especially as I'm recording this episode, something that might be listened to her but someday after she reads the book. She's just starting. Much like George in Paris in that regard. Right. <laughs> what about you, Emma? What do you think? I don't think you can trace much of a linear relationship at this point in terms of here's where the Winds of Winter tracks with season six and here's where it diverges. Because as you noted, Georgia said small changes have big ripple effects. So I think you might have to approach it the other way and say the divergences are just kind of going to be the rule. And you have major isolated events that are going to carry over. You have R plus L equals J, the J man coming back and being crowned, (laughs) Cersei going full heiress or trying to anyway, Stannis burning Shireen and hold the door. And Sansa gloriously bringing down Littlefinger, which I can't read to read about in particular. <laughs> I think all of those will be in the books. But as you say, the kind of structure of getting there is, has already changed, I think, beyond any possible attempt to bring it back, even if that's what they wanted. As, as Martin has brought up as an example, uh, my Terrell boyfriends, Willis and Garland, are not in the show. <laughs> uh, but in the books, they're kind of minor for now. Garland's in the background. Willis has not been introduced, but he has said that he has big things planned for them. So whatever those 
whatever that role is either has to be cut or replaced in the show. So I think those kind of changes have naturally just overtaken the show as they've gotten sure. off script from Martin and as more books haven't come out. So, you know, the, the sheer amount of storylines either reduced or left out by the show, though, leave plenty of room for surprises in the books. And those storylines intersect with the major ones. It's not just that we'll get more details about Young Griff's background in The Winds of Winter, and we, of course, won't get those in the show. It's also that his very existence in the books will change Danny and Cersei's storyline substantially from what yeah. they are in season six and seven, because they're going to be reacting to him no matter how far he gets. It's not just that book you're on is a tripping sorcerer who's far removed from his show self. It's that he has the potential to contribute hugely to the magical shenanigans in a way that the show is probably never equipped to handle logistically or tonally. So that's going to be an isolated experience of reading the winds of winter. And, you know, I think about like my little brother who didn't read the Lord of the Rings books until after he'd seen the movies as a kid. <laughs> and he said, like, obviously, you know, he knew that Gandalf was going to come back and that Frodo and Gollum were going to fight over the ring at the end. But there was still a lot of elements that surprised him, whether big stuff like the scouring of the Shire, which they didn't have in the movies, or just like small character details, world building elements. So I think the experience of reading The Winds of Winter, should we you know, ever be so lucky, uh, will, will not be lesser for Game of Thrones, but just different than it would have been otherwise. That is my admittedly pie-in-the-sky optimistic take. Um, I love all of that. I love everything you said. It, for me, the um, the moment that I felt, you know, this is a question that started bubbling up in the fandom, I think around season four, right? Like, will, will the shows yeah. outpace the books? Will they spoil the books? And for me... I think it was season five when it became clear that there would be no young Griff. That to me felt like one of the biggest spoilers by omission, um, which you guys have kind of alluded to, but I think that's one of the biggest things that the show does, which is um, because young Griff is not in the show, that to me means there's no way that he's actually Aegon Targaryen. So, Uh you know, like, which, which was like a strong theory anyway, obviously, but like that, that like confirms the book theory. It's like, okay, this kid is not going to be Aegon Targaryen. And so no matter what the book, like no matter what sleight of hand George does in the book, like we're going to sit here. No, this kid, this kid is not essential to the end game because why somebody have to know the end game. They know he's not essential to it. So he's not in the show. So he's, he's a fake, you know? And then that's, that's to me, some of the biggest spoilery stuff that we've seen. And I think that's even more significant than stuff like Jon Snow comes back from the dead or whatever it is or anything <laughs> else actually that actually happens because, you know, George has said that, um, you know, there's characters that are dead that will be alive, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The thing that um, I think about a lot when it comes to this question is how much this strain between what's on the screen and what will eventually be on the page is slowing George down. Um, like hmm. I'm nothing, I'm nothing but supportive of George, but I think that there is, there can't help but be this added stress of like, he now has to produce a story that is going to surprise and thrill an audience that already knows so much of what's going to happen. And it's yeah. like, oh, it's just like sucked so much fun out of it. Like, of course it did, you know? And, and then he's, he's talked over the years like repeatedly insisting that his book is going to be different in a way that the subtext feels like it's um so you still need to buy my book like you still need to read it because it's gonna it's gonna be so different don't think you know everything just because you watch the show you still need to buy my book and so um 
you know, my, the story that I have to tell still matters. And so that, that strain always really depresses me when I think about it, because I just feel bad for George all the time that, that he's found himself in this position, you know, of his own making. But as a huge procrastinator myself, like I just, (laughs) I just really like feel it and I feel for him. And, you know, that's, that's what I think about most when I think about the show spoiling the books is like how much it's put George in a bind, um, about certain things and how much I worry that he might, take some wild swings um, <laughs> just to be different. Um, I, I, I'd like to um, hope that that's not what he's going to do, but like um, uh, if, if I were in that position, that would be kind of an irresistible idea to me. It was like, well, they'll never see this coming, you know, <laughs> which wasn't his original plan, but it'll be so different from the show that, you know, everyone will be talking about it. You know, I think it's a great point. And I think when you look, especially at some of the, the sample chapters that George has released since 2014, he's released Mercy, the, the Sansa Elaine sample chapter, and then the Ariane chapter in 2016. What I see is a pattern of George saying, hey, look, you're, you're watching Game of Thrones, right? You're seeing one version of the story, but my version is going to be a bit different. Just look at this. We have... Ariane, who actually exists in my universe and doesn't exist in the show. We have Sansa, who's still in the Vale and isn't going up north to marry Ramsay Bolton. We've got Arya still in Bravos doing Faceless Men stuff and kind of starting to interact with different elements from the plot from Westeros, because we have elements from King's Landing that are showing up in Bravos, attempting to get loans from the Iron Bank and so on. But I, I think you're absolutely right in that George, there, and we talked about this in our Wins and Winners special episode on Patreon, is that... There's no way that George can't be influenced by the show. You know, I, one of the things he's talked about is that, whoa, when when OSHA returns, you know, it's going to be uh, he, he's admitted that when OSHA returns, he's going to be influenced by the betrayal that um, by the portrayal that Natalia Tana put on for OSHA in, in Game of Thrones. And I think that's it's clear to me that George watches the show. He enjoys the show to, to greater or lesser extent. I mean, I, I, he's never publicly said one way or the other, but I also think that he wants to show that his work is different. And, you know, I, I have, I don't know how to say this without hmm. sounding too uh, dismissive, but I have heard kind of along the way that that Ariane chapter that George released in 2016 was released intentionally to show that Dorne in the books is going to be different. And I guess for that, I'm, I'm thankful that Dorne is going to be different in The Winds of Winter than what was seen in season five, season six and season seven. But, you know, opinions vary, but not really a whole lot. Yeah, you know, I I think about that all the time. I don't like to ascribe uh, intentions to people, uh, especially, you know, people I don't know. But the (laughs) timing of those chapter releases, like the Sansa chapter came out, um, like, I think a month before Unbound, Unbent, Unbroken aired on HBO. Or the Elaine chapter, I should say. And then the the Ariane chapter came basically right when they wiped out Dorne on the show. So how, you know, even though Martin himself hasn't said, like, how does that not feel pointed how does that not feel directed in conversation with the show you know so it's just um and and i i was just i was just looking now what he wrote when he released that arian chapter and he's like you want to know what the sand snakes prince duran area hotel elaria sand dark star and the rest will be up to in winds of winter quite a lot actually (laughs) the sample will give you a taste for the rest you'll need to wait i mean that's so pointed you know and he denies it and they talk all the time about how they have a convivial relationship with george but it's like it's hard not to feel this tension just in that back and forth you know so yeah i agree especially since I, I wonder if he if he hadn't released that one Theon Winds of Winter chapter where it's just Stannis making all his big pre-battle decisions. If he hadn't released that before season five, I wonder if he would have released it right after Stannis went down in the show. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. yeah. T- timing would have synced up perfectly. But yeah, I love what you were saying about kind of just the layers of strain working on him, just twisting him at this point. Because, yeah, he has to 
write a book for an audience that's been spoiled on some major parts, won't care or know about other parts. And then he's <laughs> and then he's in this position I've talked about before where a huge segment of his audience is saying, at the same time, we hated your last two books, and why are you taking so long with the next one? Which is just a horrible combination of things for an author. Like, that, you know, no, no one appreciates kind of the work you went through hell trying to get down on paper for the last 20 years. But know, also like, they can't stop haranguing you for the next one. Well, what if you guys hate that one too? I know. Right. It's, it feels like pearls before swine. If I were George, I'd be like, well, fine. You don't get anything. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, is this a good place to talk about the most recent blog post he wrote? About yeah, let's do Winds it. Of Winter? Okay. Sure. Um, you know, he, he wrote a post uh, the day we're recording this, I think, uh, yes. or yesterday, perhaps, um, today, yeah. where he was talking about, uh, you know, the success of Fire and Blood, how it was number one on all these various, you know, best selling charts. And then he talked about, I will say that, like, you know, once again, I, I feel like I've been playing armchair therapist for uh, George or arm, armchair <laughs> psycho, psychoanalyst uh, for, for George for many years now. And this the tone of this post genuinely does seem more obvious optimistic and and like ebullient than I've than I've heard him seem in you know he just seems so downtrodden anytime he's like I know I know you want wins I know I know it's I'm sorry it's coming and this he's like you guys all bought fire and fire and blood that's great he's like I'm really working on wins and I feel good about it and you will get the end of a song of ice and fire for me like there's a, like emojis right and exclamation marks like it seems like a yep. very chipper George and so that's I mean you know fool me one million times shames on me but but like it feels like a different attitude and and maybe this is what he needed like he said i think he said at his book release party for fire and blood or or maybe in a in a not a blog post when it came out that it just felt so good to have a book again in his hands with his name on it hmm. and he's like here's a thing i finished I just I finished this, you know, and even if it's not what people have been clamoring for, and even though a lot of it was made up of stuff that he had published before, he's like, look at this thing I did. And sometimes that's like, you know, I I mean, for myself, for my own writer's block, sometimes I need to just go write another article that's silly and stupid and short, but I just need to finish it so that, you know, I can take that momentum and apply it to the thing that's giving me trouble. So that's my that's my hope for for George and what's going on uh, with this latest post. Yeah, that sounds right. I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what happened. And I certainly share your hope that it's what happened. Yeah, I mean, here's hoping that that, that puts uh, that lights a fire under George when we have we have the book at some point. I mean, I, mean, I want the, the books as much for him as for us. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, like if if you look back at dance, I mean. As crazy as this sounds, I've talked with folks who are, and I was not in the fandom back in like 2008, 2009. I, I had a real life back then. But, you know, when you talk <laughs> with, with folks who are in the fandom back then, they're like, oh my gosh, like it, there was so much more vitriol among book fans waiting for a dance with dragons than there is over the winds of winter. And you kind of, I kind of side eye those people. And I'm like, really? Like that, there was, it was worse back like 10 years ago than it is right now. But I mean, I, I trust what they're saying. So when George released the a dance with dragons, like there was a very palpable sense of relief from him. And he was, I mean, he wrote a huge post. I mean, it was probably like over 2000 words in which he talked about the process for, for writing a dance with dragons and how, all the delays caused different issues with him, all the narrative issues, the Marinese not different things that were going on in the narrative that were, that were, um, 
that were, that were hindering his progress and how he had to cut some material to The Winds of Winter because it was just too big of a book to fit into one book. And you kind of get a real sense that he was really struggling with that book. And I, I do imagine we'll have some sort of postmortem for The Winds of Winter as well, where we'll see George talking about the different struggles with with, uh, with The Winds of Winter and writing it, the different narrative problems he encountered. And I really think, and I, and I put this on Twitter out today, but I really, really think that one of the things that is going to and I really, really hope, I really, really hope that one of the things that's going to lead to the breakthrough in The Winds of Winter is the publication of Fire and Blood Volume 1, because I think that George needed to have that historical background in order to progress and finish The Winds of Winter. But in that light, some, back to our back to our post and back to our, our podcast entitled How Much of The Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring, The Game of Thrones Spoil, you know, a lot of fans have been asking that question since season four, season five. George did talk about this in early 2016 when he asked how will the show spoil the novels? And he said, maybe, yes, and no. And then he went on to talk about different characters and how all these characters are alive in the books, dead in the show, or dead in the, dead in the show, alive in the books, and so on and so forth. And some may die in the books that, have de- that are dead in the show, but some may live on to the end. So there's, there's a lot of differences there uh, between the show and the books. But George did failed to beat season six in publishing The Winds of Winter before that season aired. And now that we've kind of had the opportunity to digest the last two seasons of Game of Thrones, and we have season eight coming in about five months from when this episode will be published, we might be able to analyze and theorize what Game of Thrones actually spoiled from The Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring. And I thought I'd let Joanna, a chained and true archmaster who has earned her tinfoil ring and her maester's collar for all things Game of Thrones, walk us through some of the major events that occur in later seasons that George, David Benioff and Dan Weiss or people in the know have confirmed will occur in the books. Um, well, thank you. Now I just want an entire chain of tinfoil links because it's pretty much <laughs> what I what I operate with. Um, yeah, this I think this information first came to light in a Vanity Fair article uh, in oh. 2014, right when I first started working for the magazine. We had a big cover story on, Vanity, um, on Game of Thrones, the upcoming season four. And in it, Weiss and Benioff first mentioned that they had gone with George to like a hotel room in Santa Fe and sat down and he had laid out the end game for them. Like that there was a lot he didn't know, but he was like, here's the general path and here's where we're heading. And that's when they figured out that young Griff was not worth their time, among other <laughs> things. Um, and, uh, you know, according to them and a director of an episode like that, you know, he laid out a few, oh my God, holy shit moments and, and some other things. Um, you guys left a note for me that apparently there's debate in the fandom about this, and that's because you guys operate on like a way deeper level of fandom than <laughs> than I do. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, this is like pretty much gospel. So um, the fact that uh, Shireen will burn, right, yes. I think is the information that they've given us. Who As to who burns her, I think we'll talk about a little bit later on, uh-huh. but, but she will definitely burn and I, I remember when that happened that she like you know Serene burns in the show and all of us were like oh my god why somebody have lost their minds they're such brutes I can't believe it and then in the, in the after episode they're like this is George's idea so you take your complaints over to Santa Fe okay um <laughs> George told Weiss and Benioff uh, that Melisandre was a couple centuries old. And we also have um, this other information from uh, the actor Oliver Ford Davies, who played uh, Maester Cresson, who, you know, that character dies at the beginning of season two. And he he told journalists in 2013 that according to Carice Van Houten, who plays uh, Melisandre, that she told him Melisandre's 400 years old. We don't know, like, how accurate those that actual number is like if that actor remembers if Carice even knew but like in season two 
she knew she was playing yep. a very old woman. So that's interesting. Um, the Hodor reveal that Hodor's name is derived from Hold the Door. Um, that's something we found out in the post-episode interview uh, when in, when Hold the Door aired in season six. And then this is the one, this is the only one that I like would take a few grains of salt with because uh, this came from director Alan Taylor, this last bit of information. And he said... Um, you know, he directed Beyond the Wall in season seven, which is like one of my least favorite episodes of Game of Thrones ever. <laughs> um, but he also directed some season one episodes. And he said that, you know, he told Deadline after after his episode, after his season seven episode aired, he told Deadline that then when they were filming in season one, in, back in 2010, George R. R. Martin told him that the convergence of John and Danny were sort of the point of the series. Now, listen, if you read <laughs> interviews that Alan Taylor, I believe that like, and this is, I mean, that's okay. First of all, this is not a surprise to a lot of people, like A Song of Ice and Fire, a lot of people believe that that is a song of Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen. So mm-hmm. like, no one's super surprised about them being some sort of romantic or heroic endgame, except for, I guess, the Jon and Sansa shippers who are very <laughs> mad about certain things. But, um, but that, you know... I don't know if you read all of the interviews that Alan Taylor gave after that series, but he was talking a lot of nonsense about other things, <laughs> which on. just makes me like, and also he directed Terminator Genesis. So like Alan Taylor <laughs> is not someone that I pay a lot of attention to. So, <laughs> so, Brilliant. so yep. and Thor, the dark world, which is like the worst Marvel movie anyway, but wait, wait, good wait, wait, old Alan, 100%. like, I believe that George R. R. Martin was like, oh, those two? Yeah, they're they're boning by the end of the season, like of the series. Like, I believe that. But we're sort of the point of the series. I don't know if if I believe that characterization. That could just be Alan Taylor's sort of memory of it. So that's the only one that I am gonna like put my tinfoil hat on for about. Um Yeah, and so and then uh, you know, according to everything we know. George R. R. Martin revealed one more, oh my God, OMG, holy shit moment <laughs> that has yet to be dropped on the series. So, you know, we can we can talk about that a little bit more later as well. Yeah, for sure. That's a great rundown. And yeah, like I was saying earlier, I think there are more of these isolated events that are going to be the same in the books and the show in terms of the later seasons, more than the general structure of the, the character arcs and the storylines. The context and sequence of events leading up to those individual events will likely be different in the books. Stannis can't possibly burn Shireen on the March to Winterfell in the books. She's still back at Castle Black with her mom. So that'll have to happen in a different context, whether Stannis comes back and burns her at the night fort, fitting the kind of Night's King imagery in the history of that castle. Or maybe Selyse and Shireen come to Stannis at Winterfell or in that area at some point, and that's when it happens. But definitely the buildup is going to be somewhat different there. As you say, there was some consternation after that happened in the show. I mean, for me, even as a Stannis fan, I kind of always felt like (laughs) the burning of Shireen was coming after uh, he considered burning his nephew in book three. It felt like that was... Because he never... While Davos got Edric Storm away from Stannis, Stannis never actually said the words, I was wrong to consider burning my nephew. (laughs) That was was a bad thing. Those words never escaped. Has Stannis ever said, I was wrong? He did to? say it to John once. He okay. did say, yes, I, when John says, you should have come to the wall sooner, Stannis is like, yeah, I should have. <laughs> You're right. That's kind of fucked up. But other than that, yeah. And like, no, he's never backed down from that position, which I think is a telling choice on Martin's part that Stannis still kind of buys into that logic. So I, I think that'll it'll still happen, but just in a different context. And like, hold the door, which is, that's, that's the one where I really feel for Martin, because... 
As much as we can talk about how, you know, you gotta, it's the details that matter and the journey and the friends we make along the way. Like that is one, <laughs> one specific moment, one specific revelation that you gotta know when Martin came up with Hold the Door, he was thinking, I'm gonna blow people's minds with this. This is gonna be great. <laughs> yeah. They're not gonna see this coming. So to have it revealed, I, I, I would be crestfallen by that as a creator as well. So that's one where I definitely feel the pain. At the very least, I, th- I love that episode. I, the very least, I think the show in that instance did his oh, yeah. like, yes. vision justice, you know? I agree completely. Like, imagine yep. if they had just, like, totally, you know, boned that reveal. And he's like, not only did I not get to do it, but those chuckle fucks did it that way? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so, it's a great episode, you know? So I mean, the thing True. is, like, I, I feel like maybe Martin has alluded to this, that he always had Hold the Door in mind from, like, 1991. So, this is, like, something that was... 25 years in the making in his own mind before it came out in season six. And I feel for George that way. I mean, obviously there's complications, of course, not having the winds of winter out, but I do feel for George in that way. I mean, there's other things too, like John being resurrected. I mean, you get the sense that George at least had that in mind, at least for 10, 15 years or so. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that was always in the cards from the get go. There's, there's allusions from the first book that talk about John being in an ice cell, getting cold and stuff like that, which might allude to John dying and being resurrected and things like that. But, you know, you do feel for George that a lot of these big things that ended up coming out in season six and seven were spoiled by the show. I mean, I really, really think that the primary thing that George was afraid of being spoiled was that he thought that the big reveal was that Jon Snow was coming back. Now, of course... Everyone and their fucking mother knew that Jon Snow was coming <laughs> yeah. back, you know? That's but, not a surprise, buddy. But, I mean, there, I'm sure there was book... I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I remember this from, from Reddit in, like, 2013, 2014. There are still people saying, like, what if Jon stays continuously dead? Or what if he's only, only wounded and stuff like that? And I'm like, dude, no, he's fucking dead and he will come back. I mean, that's... That's part of the point of of John, you know, being stabbed and everything like that. And you have all these sorts of complications that will unravel afterwards. But I, I do feel like that was the thing that John, that George was really trying to get ahead of is that that big reveal. But for most people, it was not necessarily the biggest thing that, that happened in season six. I mean, everybody knew that John was coming back. Everybody. I mean, his story's, his story's not over. He doesn't know who his mom is. You can't kill him off permanently at that point. And. And and also killing and resurrecting your messianic protagonist is kind of a thing. Like to me, that's different from hold the door because hold the door is just this weird twist that kind of comes out of nowhere, which is what makes it great. And it's the answer to something you didn't really even know was a question. Like, yeah, I I know there was speculation about it, but I never really thought about why Hodor says Hodor a lot. Yeah, it wasn't just a, it wasn't a question that occurred to me. So that's a that's a specific element where I could, again, see wanting to keep that a secret. But yeah, John coming back, not can so I, much. But I, can I do like again, a really can I do a really selfish digression for a second? Of course. Yes. Best kind. In terms of Jon Snow coming back, so I wrote all these really embarrassing to read now articles <laughs> at the time about how Jon is definitely going to like come back slightly feral or like, right. you know, all sorts of stuff because those are all the rules that are set up. Cause I was still thinking the show was operating under the rule of George's book, where it's just like, if you get resurrected, you come back wrong. That's mm-hmm. something that he's been preparing us for on the page for so long. So it was like, you know, John's definitely coming back wrong in some way. Not like, you know, full on only howling and snarling, but like close, you know? <laughs> and then he came back and he was just, fine <laughs> really just like no maybe change. a little poutier his hair was a little <laughs> shorter but he was fine and i've never been angry about anything because like i you know i looked like i looked so dumb because i was so wrong but i'm still convinced i'm right 
So when Winds of Winter comes out, I will be first in line and I will be skimming for like the the John chapters and I'll just be like, you guys, I was right just because Weiss and Betioff decided not to do it doesn't mean I was wrong about it. So that's <laughs> well, my like really like bruised mm-hmm. ego reason why I really want Winds of Winter soon. Well, you, you Everyone's gotta, got one of those. You got to look for the ghost chapters first before you get to the John chapters. Yeah, exactly. The war game chapter. Yeah. <laughs> I just picture you skipping halfway. It's like, ha, John's eating a squirrel. See? See? <laughs> I cannot I wait right. for John to eat a squirrel. It's all I want in the world. So, But yeah. it's true. But yeah, in the show, he's like, I have come back behind the veil of fire to bring you the word of the man bun. And that's pretty much <laughs> the difference. Well, it's, it's just so maddening because they insist that John is different now in every single yeah. interview. And I'm like, how though? No. Show me how. Yeah. And you're right. That's exactly what's set up in the books. You've got that great monologue from Beric Dondarrion about, you know, can I miss, can I dwell on what I scarce remember? I had a woman I was to marry, a castle I lived. I can't remember any of it now. I feel like I was just born with you in the tree grove with the, with the taste of ash in my mouth. And that's a great setup. But yeah, John and the show, not so much. He's pretty much just the same dude. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's also like, a, it's, I mean, to kind of expand that out, to, get, to expand out from the digression, to, to digress from the digression, the, the fact that nobody like gives a fuck that John like came back from the dead, like is still mind boggling. Like nobody's like, wait, you were stabbed and you died and you came back. Like nobody has kind of like stood like in front of John being like, how the fuck did you come back, dude? Like there's no sense of like wonder and amazement and, and shock really. At John's return, I mean, I I watched rewatched some of season six recently because my my brother in law went through all the seasons of Game of Thrones, and uh, I, I, funny enough, he uh, I I found this out when he was two episodes short of the Red Wedding episode, so I said, hey. Well, you want to watch a few episodes? Oh, no. Perfect timing. <laughs> Wait, was he not spoiled for the Red Wedding? He was completely unspoiled. It was the first what time if, I had ever, besides myself. So I, when I What are those rare baby deer in the forest? I can't imagine they're still out there. <laughs> he had no idea it was coming. So I was, I was trying, the funny thing is he was, he was looking at his phone during some of season, uh, season three, episode nine, the Reigns of like, Casper. I'm like, dude. They're playing music. You should probably pay attention to this scene. Like this, something might happen here. He's like, okay, fine. And then at the end, he was just like, what the fuck? (laughs) What fucking show am I watching? But no, I can't believe that's an experience you had in 2018. Exactly. Like, oh, that's, that's so five years ago. Exactly. It was just a month ago, but, but yeah, but no, I, I I was watching some of rewatching some of season six with him because he had progressed a little bit beyond that. And there's that scene where, where John is meeting up with, um, with not the Manderlees, with with the Mormonts, and then he meets up with the Glovers, and nobody's like, hey, you came back from the dead, you died, you know, there's no, like, wait a minute, this is a little bit odd. And I always found that to be kind of, in addition to John's characterization not really changing at all between season five and season six, I always found the reaction of the characters in-universe to be extraordinarily weird, given the fact that someone came back from the fucking dead. Exactly, and, like, I don't know how... um how much I'm going to tick off your listeners by going after Ken Harrington for a second, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know how, how popular he is with your listeners, but um, I will say like doing that close reading of the scripts that I did recently and then watch like reading the script and then watching that scene, you know, to see how the actor has interpreted uh, the stage directions and to, to see how Kit Harrington processed this stage direction about how he John realizes he's in love with Danny and it's just like him blinking slowly. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh, you True. know, comp- compared to like say 
um, Gwendolyn Christie and Nikolai Kosterwaldo in a bath, uh, you know, yes. earlier in the series, where it's just like there's so much subtext happening with looks and all of that. And it's just sort of like it's so rich compared to Kit Harrington pouting and blinking at the screen. And I'm like, okay, maybe John is supposed to come back wrong, but like <laughs> Kit is not is not the guy for that or something. I don't know. You know, he's got great hair. Uh, <laughs> we'll so give that, him that. Yeah, we'll give him. He's got the hair. Yeah. I agree with you, Jeff. And it's also like none of the Northerners say, hey, weren't you brought back by that centuries-old weird red priestess from the fire god we hate? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> but fine. So now that we have some of the certainties nailed down about really what is going to appear in Winds of Winter, at least for a couple specific scenes, let's move into a more s- speculative territory. Yeah. Did Game of Thrones spoil anything for the future of the Winds of Winter that we didn't already know from sample chapters or things George has said? So we thought we could review some of the major elements of the seasons that have not occurred in the books yet and haven't been revealed by D&D as will be occurring in the books, like the events we were just talking about. So to start with some of the earlier seasons, because there are events there that could pay off later in the books. In season four, we see Jojen Reed die uh, as part of the process of reaching the Cave of the Children. He's uh, killed off or about to be killed off by the others in their whites and getting mercy killed to avoid that fate. In the books, that has... He, Jojen probably is already dead and resting comfortably within Bran's digestive tract. So there's that. But even even if that turns out not to be true, Jojen has been saying from his introduction that he knows his own death and has seen his own death and knows the day it's coming, which you don't set up a character like that without killing him off at some point. So yeah. it seems guaranteeing that even if Jojen Pace is not true, which it probably is, Jojen's going to die at some point. That seems pretty much guaranteed. I'm a hardcore Jojen Pace believer. Like, I believe it, in, in the Pace. It, it fits the theme of cannibalism and brand story and Dancing with Dragons as a whole really well. It's also just so horrifying if that's what Jojen saw coming this whole time. Jesus. Like, no wonder he's so solemn all the time. He's, like, spent years going, I'm going to be eaten by my friend for power. And no wonder, like, he constantly says, like, you know, Brandon, you really should eat. Like, you're not eating. You can't just oh eat as gosh. your wolf. You, the human, has to eat. Don't oh, get hungry. Oh. I'm just saying. Please don't. Never thought about he's that. Got that he's, great. Got that great ch- he's got that great chilling line in Bran's last dance chapter when... Mira says, Jojen, you're scaring him. And Jojen just says, Brand is not the one who needs to be afraid. Mm. Ah! That definitely Aww. resonates. I know, right? Oh, so creepy. Poor bud. <laughs> exactly. So the other major thing in season four that might portend events later in the books is the White Walkers taking Craster's male children and specifically transforming them into White Walkers. Something like that, I think, is probably happening in the books. At the end of the Craster's Keep Mutiny chapter in A Storm of Swords... Two of Craster's older wives tell Sam he has to run with Gillian the baby because Craster's sons will soon be here. The cold winds are rising and with yeah. those come the suns. That doesn't say it outright, but it heavily implies that Craster's sons are coming back as others because the others bring the cold and go after children. So, you know, who knows if the mechanics are different, who knows what the reveal will be like. But that's something that always stood out as a strong possibility from... A Clash of Kings and Storm of Swords forward, even before season four. Yeah, and that agreed. being said, I mean, like, is this where we should talk about the Night King even like existing in a contemporary storyline? Yeah, know? yeah. Like, yeah, the Night King shows question. up on the show and is not <laughs> shown up in the book. So this is like such a huge icon of the HBO series, and book readers are like, he's not really in the books in that way. <laughs> like, I'm paging through the books. I don't remember a guy with a crown poking out of his head. Where was he? Where's Ice Darth Maul in all of this? I don't know. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, that might be a classic, like, you know, in the show, you need just need a visual reference point for the others. You need someone yeah. specifically to look at and know that's the bad guy. Whereas in the books, you can afford to be a little more, like, hive mindish, vague, and Lovecraftian. But again, we'll see if that reveal comes up. In the books, I kind of doubt it because the way they've set him up in the books is that he was a human who got tempted 
and is just kind of historical, like, figure, analog, cautionary tale kind of guy, but I'm sure we'll see some kind of hierarchy to the others. I don't know if it's going to specifically be that guy. I mean, George did kind of address this back when someone asked him about whether the Night King is leaving the others, and he said, well, the Night King and Bran the Builder, Bran the Builder are uh, legendary characters that existed thousands of years ago, which to me seemed to imply that, no, we, we're not going to see a Night King figure in, in the story. And to me, that I mean, I, I, I see why the show opted to choose a singular other or White Walker in their case to lead them and to be kind of the figurehead for evil, so to speak. But I also see where having a I don't I don't know. We don't, we don't really know much about the others, even after five published books in Song, Ice and Fire. But to have the others be leaderless, but still united behind the same purpose and ending all human life seems to be a much more scarier horror moment in George's work that does call back to some of his earlier uh, ventures into horror fiction, because that's where he really got started in his writing science fiction and horror, right. and horror, horror novels. Well, we should also mention. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's possible that D&D might have just plucked a cool name out of the backstory when yeah. they were coming up with a central other thing and said Knights King Night King that sounds awesome let's just use that which I would which honestly prefer them do yeah I would prefer them like draw from you know use Georgian like other than saying like ice ice leader man you know yeah because um, you know it would be that yeah <laughs> but the, um, Mr. The, Freeze wait that's it's uh, what else we got ice to meet you um, so <laughs> Like this, once again, I, I maybe want to mention that uh, in both George's book and in the early version of the show, the the White Walkers like communicated in a way that they're not communicating in the yeah. later seasons of the show. You know, like uh, David Peterson wrote a went to the trouble of creating a language for hmm. the uh, the others, and in in the books, it, you know, it's described a couple times as the sound of ice crackling is sort of what it sounds like. Um, but at this point in the show, they're all communicating telepathically, so. But as like to your point about like whether or not we would see a hierarchy in the others, I think you know the the language points to a civilization that we might eventually get to see. Which is still weird because we had talked about this in our very first episode of the Not a Cast, in that George had apparently told Elio and Linda, uh, Elio Garcia Jr. and Linda Antonson, his co-writers from the Royce and Fire and the purveyors of Westeros.org, that the others don't have a civilization or a culture or anything like that. Which is is strange because we do see in the books that they somehow communicate with each other. They, I mean, in, in the prologue from a Game of Thrones, it's mentioned that the others are are laughing and mocking uh, Waymar Royce as as he tries to fight um, fight the others. And so, I mean, it is kind of there's some weirdnesses there that I'm interested in seeing how it plays out in the Winds Winter. So there's definitely nuances to to the White Walkers and the others that we see we're going to see in the books that weren't necessarily present in the show. What about season five, Jeff? What do we what do we see there that might pay off? In season five. Okay, so the big big one is that Ramsey Bolton defeats Stannis Baratheon in a battle outside of Winterfell, and that don't is say those words, Jeff. Fucking You're just wrong. like tempting fate. Don't, fucking wrong. Don't say them so casually to me like that. Well, if you say it casually, it means it won't happen. You just have to be like, oh, you just have to talk about it in a dismissive way, and then it'll be good to go. I suppose you're right. You are the strong one. Anyway, keep going. I will talk about that. We'll, we'll be talking about that a little bit more as we go on. And the second major thing, and I'm sure there, there's probably maybe a few other ones that I didn't catch here, but Barrison Selmy is murdered by the Sons of the Harpy in Marine. Um, that's an interesting one. I say no because of my theory that Barrison will turn cloak on Daenerys Targaryen on behalf of Aegon Targaryen, but I know that Emmett disagrees and he has his own wrong theory about what happens with Barristan. It's the one thing Jeff is wrong about. Oh. I think I think this is one of those cases where 
D&D knew about the specific scene in question, knew how Barristan was going to go down and kind of reshuffled it a bit to fit what they were doing in season five, where I do think Barristan is going to go down fighting masked assailants like he did in the show. But in the books, the masked assailants that are focused on are not the Sons of the Harpy, but the Brazen Beasts, mm-hmm. this kind of guerrilla group that Dany sets up under her local allies, Skehaz Mokandak and Marine. And there were, not to belabor the issue too much, but there are all these hints throughout <laughs> A Dance with Dragons that Barristan is really kind of frightened of the masks and spooked out by them and doesn't trust them and works with the shave paper. The shave paper clearly has its own agenda. So I think all of that is going to pay off with, with Barristan's downfall. And I think it's going to be similar in that it's him up against a bunch of creepy guys in masks, but it'll, it will be his former allies rather than just his enemies. So I think that'll add an extra sting to it. But maybe I'm wrong and Barristan turns his cloak and goes to Westeros and gets a what? puppy and a unicorn. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well to be... To be fair, I, I, just one one final point. I think we talked about when we will talk about young Griff, and I do wonder whether. I mean, you could you could be right. I mean, if I have to admit that I might be wrong about something. <laughs> that hurt, buddy. I know that hurt. And I my, my heart is breaking for my own self right now. But I mean, you you could be right that Barrison goes down from from the brazen beasts in, in the books. But it also kind of strikes me that when you abandon the young Griff plot line, that it's the same sort of thing where you have to find a way to get Barristan out the exit door from Danny's storyline. So if you don't have young Griff for Barristan to turn cloak towards, then you have the ability to give him kind of a badass send off. And that's one of those things that kind of season five gets a, like that scene gets a lot of grief. But I actually really like that scene from season five where Barristan fights the Sons of the Harpy unarmored and he like takes out like dozens of them before he's finally taken down. I thought that was a, for me, I thought that was a good send off. Although of course, uh, Ian McKelleny, who plays Barrison Selmy did not necessarily like that because he was like, wait a minute, I've read a dance with dragons. I know I've got a bunch of badass scenes here and you are taking those away from me. And I, to be fair, I would have enjoyed seeing Barristan taking down his Darzo Lorak and his, uh, his dance with me then sort of the nice dance with me. That's way more Royce. What's that? What's that line that that Barrison says in a dance with dragons when he's fighting Kraz? This old man is going to kill you. Sir, yeah. Or something yeah. Like something that. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can picture Ian McKelney just stomping into his offices going, I became a POV. Damn it. Just throwing a dance with dragons down. On I have death. chapters. Come on. <laughs> I um, was a whole thing. Yeah. I may never, uh, get over my joy at reading like bitter post interviews from uh, Game of Thrones <laughs> actors. There's, there's Unhappy few, actors are great. There's a few good ones. If you've never read Alexander Siddig talking about Game of Thrones, please do yourself a favor. On oh, that yeah. note, shall I do season six? Not gonna sell. Please do. Alright, Dora Mattel, Tristan Martell, and Aria Hota killed by the Sand Snakes. I said, I say no, and you guys are like, you're dumb and wrong, but um... <laughs> The, no, I agree with you, com- I agree with you completely. You. Jeff's the one who's dumb and wrong. Well, I, I, I just had to I, be the right, the sole right person, apparently. For I, I think what what the the thing that's coalescing from this podcast is basically any plot that touched the young Griff plot, like sort of got hacked by proxy. Huh. Yeah, and so yep. like if you talk about what you just said about Barrison Selmy, or if we talk about Ariane, or you know, or we're going to talk later about some theories about Ariane and Young Griff and stuff like that. And so this to me feels like there's no reason for uh, the Martells uh, or the male Martells uh, in Area Hota to be killed by the Sand Snakes. Um, when like when George doesn't need to bump off actors in order, they can just live and be part of the machinations and whether they succeed or fail, they can just they can still be alive. You don't need to kill an Arlena Tyrell. You don't like I understand you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. But like, you know, no, sometimes people survive having lost the throne. So um, that's my thought on that. Tell me why I'm wrong. I mean, 
I think there's a lot of hinting in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons that the sand, that everyone thinks that the Sand Snakes are going to kill Dorne Martell. I mean, at the end of the first Ariel Hota chapter in A Feast for Crows, um, she he meets up with... Um, not Nymeria, not Obara, but Tyene. He meets up with Tyene at the end. <laughs> One of them. God, I, I, One of those three. Yeah, I think I've read these books once or twice. Um, but it could be, you could doubt it after, after listening to me. And one of the things that they talk about there is uh, immediately after she leaves, like the maester rushes over to Dorn Martell and starts checking him to see if like she's poisoned him because she is renowned for poisoning people and for having hidden daggers up her sleeves and stuff like that. So I, I do wonder whether that's a potential um, hint that the Sand Snakes will play a part in the death of Dorn Martell. And then for Ariel Hota, we have Obara saying that I will take the spear and shove it so far up you. And then she's interrupted when, because Ariel Hota's preventing her from speaking with Dora Martell at the, at the beginning of, of the, of the captain of the guards chapter from, from a feast for crows. And I, you know, I, I don't know how Dora Martell's plot line is going to play out in the winds winter. It's one of those kind of question marks for me. I mean, I, I, I know the Dornish will end up back. I, I figure, I think it's pretty widely agreed upon that the, that the Dornish will end up backing Aegon Targaryen or young Griff at some point in the storyline. But you do have to wonder what Dora Martell's perspective of that's going to be. In the Winds of Winter sample chapter from Arianne's first chapter, he's starting to think that maybe Quentin is dead, but he doesn't have confirmation of that. Uh, Barrison dispatches the two knights that are still left in Quentin's service back to Dorne eventually, but of course they have to bring uh, certain sellsword companies over to their side in the Battle of Fire. But it's possible that they might not reach Dorne Martell in time before he has to make the decision of whether he's going to back young Griff or not, and whether he's, that's going to be the way that he's going to get his vengeance. If Dorne Martell is still kind of tries to prevaricate, tries to prevent himself, tries to prevent Dorne and his family from entering into the conflict on the side of young Griff because he's still thinking that maybe Quentin is alive. Maybe the Sand Snakes would be like, fuck no, and they'll try and kill him and they will end up killing him in Ariohota. But I, I, I'm, I'm right, but I understand that you guys have wrong opinions about it. <laughs> I would give you Ariohota. Okay, now I want to hear what Evan has to say. <laughs> Here are two reasons why I think you're wrong, Jeff. I think, <laughs> uh, first of all, I think the Sand Snakes... While they are certainly violent and kind of short-sighted, they aren't stupid. And unlike the show where they kind of hand-wave this, I don't understand how they think they'd get away with that. Yeah. Or what, what the end game is going to be or how they're right. going to end up in charge. Like, the other thing is that while they certainly resent Duran and, you know, speak violent words to him in Ariohota, for me, their violence always seems principally directed outward and that they're annoyed at Duran for not letting them kill people <laughs> more than they are setting out to kill Duran himself. So I think Obara is going to focus her rage against Darkstar and his crew. I think Tyene and Nymeria will focus on the Lannisters. I think they might end up being the ones to kill Tommen and Marcella in the books. We'll yeah. see about that. We'll see. They've certainly made threats therein. But yeah, I think I think Duran might get more of an ironic revenge coming around to bite you on the ass kind of death regarding Daenerys and that whole plot line. But... Speaking of Daenerys, what's going to happen with her in the Winds of Winter? Um, I want to say really quickly that I think Prince Durant, now I think Prince Durant gets bitten by a snake, literally. In the, in, there we in go. In the grass. That's what happens to him. Okay. Uh, Daenerys is taken captive by the Dothraki. This is like, uh, you know, pretty much, well, the, my only question mark here is captive, right? Because we know she like is yeah. going yeah. to encounter the Dothraki horde. We know that we can assume, based on George R. R. Martin's, I don't know if we're allowed, do we talk about the original outline mm-hmm. that... People know about. Okay. I didn't know if that's a spoiler, but um, 
the original outline he submitted to his publisher, we know that she ha- she goes back to Westeros with a Dothraki horde. So, like, she will encounter them. We know that. She- they will come under her rule. We know that. Whether or not there's this whole, like, nonsense of her getting kidnapped and having to make a feminist point by burning all the chals and all this sort of stuff, I don't know about that. That's how I feel about that. So, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. The crucial difference between books and show here is that Danny has Drogon with her in the books. He's right there. Right. So I don't think she's being taken captive by anybody. I'm sure there's going to be some resistance to her. Martin has indicated that the character of Mago, who was killed off by Cal Drogo in season one of the show, but is still around in the books, is going to be something of a recurring antagonist for Danny in the Winds of Winter and will probably lead the anti-Daenerys faction among the Dothraki. But yeah, I don't think we're going to see her taken in chains to Viastothrock. I think she flies there quite triumphantly <laughs> with with already a few backers before she gets there. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Uh, Roose Bolton is murdered by Ramsey. I say, sure, why not? Yes, <laughs> what absolutely. Do you guys think? <laughs> Hell yeah. I think this is set up really strongly. There's last, Theon's last chapter in Dance when he's at Winterfell and they're about to ever, he's about to try to escape with the Spearwives and Jane. He mentions that Roos and Ramsey are arguing, that he's too far away to hear it, but that Fat Walda looks really afraid. And that's also the first time that Fat Walda's pregnancy is mentioned. Yeah. So, yeah, I kind of think it's going down similar to how it happened in the show. The only real question is if we're going to see it, because there's no POV actually inside Winterfell at the moment. So if Ramsey kills Roos anytime soon, we're just going to hear about it afterwards, which would be a difficult thing to manage. Martin did do that for Balin Greyjoy in the books. He killed him off screen, but it would be kind of disappointing if such a distinct villain as, as Roos was killed off screen. We didn't get to, didn't get to see. I mean, I think I it's, it's also pointed to that the pink letter was signed by Ramsey when it, it could have been signed by Roos. I mean, I know that folks like Ellie and Linda think that is evidence that Roos is already dead by the time the pink letter is sent. And I, I, I think that's probably accurate. Um, again, it's 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 weird to me that we would see that Roose Bolton's death would be off screen or off page in this case. But I, I could see it working out because Roose's primary purpose and primary purpose in being a villain in the story, it, 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 it ended really with the Red Wedding and it kind of extended out. And then he has his heir in the form of Ramsay that can take on the Bolton role of being the antagonist to Stannis and the Starks and the Winds of Winter. So we'll see. Yeah, let's just skip ahead then and, and then ask the question, do you think Ramsay wrote the pink letter? I say, I say yes. yes. What do you guys think? Okay. Absolutely. I also say yes. I think okay. I think people have somewhat misread what the twist is supposed to be on this one. I don't think the twist is supposed to be the author. I think the twist is the content. Yes. And that Ramsay isn't entirely correct about what went down with Stannis and that's going to be revealed. But right. Yeah, I've never seen, like, a convincing motive for anyone else. Like, Stannis wrote the letter to what? Get John to, get to John leave there. the... <laughs> so to, to, to get John to find him in the snow with, like, yeah. 50 Night's Watchmen? And that was going right. to help him how? Yeah. Or, like, Mance wrote it, which is just pure tinfoil. So, I, I, you know, I get that it is tantalizing and it's tempting to look for other authors, but I, I don't, again, I think that's the wrong question. Agreed. Yeah, I agree. Yes. I agree. Ramsey with the letter, whether or not the content of the letter is accurate, you know, we can definitely debate. Um, all right. Uh, John Snow resurrected by Melisandre. So what do you, I want to ask you guys this. What do you guys <laughs> think of the idea of connecting the burning of Shireen with the resurrect and, resurrection of John Snow that like that, uh, you know, the, that magic, if there is indeed any role or magic uh, at all winds up, um, bringing him back. Do you think that that's a thing that could happen? I don't. I mean, okay, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I feel, I feel like John's resurrection is set up strongly by the warging idea that we see in the Veramir prologue chapter where you can live a second, third and fourth. Right. I mean, six lives in the, in the case of Veramir, six skins. 
um, through, you know, taking on the, the life force of something else. So I imagine John is killed at the end of the Dance of Dragons, wards, wargs into Ghost, and then is resurrected at some point. I, I mean, I feel like the show kind of did it with like kind of the, the rituals. And I do wonder, I mean, there's, there's an interesting case to be made about whether Melisandre will think that she resurrected John, but in fact, it was like a character like blood Raven working like the magic of the old gods that brought John back. I think that would be an interesting twist in the winds of winter, but I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think though that the burning of Shireen will bring John back. If that makes sense. I mean, I think that'd be a really dark twist and I think it may be satisfying, but I, I think for the narrative to progress in The Winds of Winter, John has to come back not too, too late in the narrative, if that makes sense. That's a good point. I think uh, I've always been pretty hardline that it has to be Stannis who makes the call to burn Shireen. I think there's too much setup in his arc, as I was saying earlier in A Storm of Swords, about Edric Storm and about how Stannis thought about that and about how it was ultimately his call and Melisandre wasn't trying to, like, do it behind his back. I also think that Stannis made the conscious decision to kill Renly, although I know Jeff disagrees on that count. I think I think Stannis is... I, I think a running theme is that all of Stannis' loyal men like Davos and Crescent assume Melisandre is like bewitching him and making him do it, but actually he is deciding to do all of this yeah. for good or ill. I think he's in the driver's seat. And I also think, you know, that Beric Dondarrion didn't actually need anyone's sacrifice to bring him back except part of his own soul. Thoros right. gave him the kif- kiss of life and, and uh, Beric came back. So I think I think it'll be more like that with John. He'll come back. There won't be a third party who sacrificed. But as you were saying earlier in the books, John, John is going to be somewhat different from his previous self. And there's a metaphorical sacrifice in that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, John Snow abandons the Night Watch. The Night's Watch. Do- Dolores Ed becomes Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. I believe. Um, for me, I definitely believe that John is leaving the Brotherhood. Um, yeah. But I don't know that I would put Dolores Ed as the Lord Commander. I think that that's like one of those show show conveniences of like, uh, let's take the most recognizable still living friend of John and like put him in this role uh, when in the books it could easily be someone else uh, like who feels a little bit more qualified um, that's still kicking it up at Castle Black. What do you guys think? Yeah. I'm, yeah, I like that. I would, I would, I would put in my personal vote for my namesake in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, Iron Emmett, who is okay. the Ranger of the Night's Watch. <laughs> Great. And is, is is just a badass, and you know I can't lift a sword to save my life, but he'll just be my my analog <laughs> for that. But yeah, I agree. I think John is leaving the Night's Watch. I think he kind of basically already was when he said he was going to march south to fight Ramsay. Right. Yeah, I don't exactly. know if he was thinking about it that way, but he basically was. And now that he's dead, he gets out of that technicality of my watch Ugh. will not end until my death. So. Love that loophole. Love it. Contract right. loopholes. Gotta <laughs> love them. Um, we already mentioned. We already talked about uh, Daenerys and her Kalisar. Does she burn the calls? And that's, I mean, some maybe some version of that. Maybe she burns that yeah. one specific call or whatever. Um, the origin of the White Walkers was that men uh, that they were men that the children of the forest transformed uh, with or without a shard of dragonglass through the chest. Sure, why not? Uh, what do you guys think about that? That's pretty much how I feel. I'm sure there's more details to it in the books. I think there's. Uh, the fact that the others control zombies has led people to suggest there's some kind of skin-changing magic involved with how the others became a thing because the others are kind of corrupted skin-changers who control dead creatures instead of living creatures. So I'm sure there will be a lot more details. But yeah, like you were saying, the others have a language in the books. They have some kind of culture. They're bipedal. They have faces. They wear swords. It's not that surprising that they would once have been humans. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea that the children of the forest in desperation turn to kind of a 
a Stannis thing. Like the was the the fate of one child against a million in the case of the, the children of the forest. They're up against the extinction of their entire race in fighting the first men. So they opted for something that was completely monstrous and turning men into these horrible creatures that they could utilize to fight against the first men. But of course, that ended up turning terribly, terribly wrong for them as as their own creatures turned against them. I think it's a good, nice twist in the story. I agree. All right. The Three-Eyed Raven dies. Um, I'm not, I, I wrote sure here. I'm going to say like, def- like definitely, right? Like this is setting up Bran to take on this role, whether he stays in the tree or goes elsewhere. Uh, do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if the old mentor wizard character is going to die. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Nah, can't be. Yeah, Blood Raven's, I mean, Blood. Ra- it's a miracle Blood Raven's still alive. He's definitely <laughs> lasting the series. I mean, they call they call Bran. He Blood Raven calls Bran the last Green Seer. So I mean, that's obviously saying that his his time as the Green Seer is is ending, and it's time for Bran to take up the mantle because he's not long for this world. Excellent. We are look at this beautiful. We all agree. All right. Um, Bran flees Blood Raven's cave after the White Walker attack is saved by Cold Hands, who is pensioned. I have like I I did my best George R. R. Martin impression here in the notes and just wrote no in yes. caps in all caps. Uh, what do you guys think? I concur with George R. R. Martin's note to the editor. Yes. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, I do. Th- I, I do think it's interesting because that was a major theory that Bran would stay forever in the cave of the of the three eyed crow in the in the books. That he that he flees from the cave is kind of a more interesting uh, distinction, and I do wonder whether that might actually pan out in, in the books as well, where the Bran and Mira end up fleeing from from the cave. I think that's. I think that'd be an interesting twist. I think that. that subverts reader expectations so to speak if you want to get into the into the theorizing side of it one thing i think might be interesting a twist in the books is that they have several times mentioned gorn's way a series of tunnels that a previous wildling king used to try to get south of the yes. wall oh, nice. now that okay. might just be world building that doesn't pay off but i think it would be really interesting if that's how bran and mira if she's the only one left gets get away from the white walkers and get south of the cave as if they go underground especially since that would result in the ultimate nerdgasm moment of then emerging back up into Winterfell through the crypts, which could be the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So maybe some variation we could see on that uh, in the books. But yeah, on the whole, Bran fleeing the cave after the other's attack, uh, that definitely seems like it's going to happen. But yeah, Cold Hands is not Benjen. If, if, Bran, if Bran doesn't leave the tree ever again, let's say he doesn't, um, and we get point of view POV chapters from him uh, in the future. Like, what? how do you think that that would play out? Like, uh, are we going to get just like fun vision chapters where it's just like some fun cryptic stuff that we get to decipher? Or does he become like omniscient and we get to just like, does he then become the ultimate POV character because he can just sort of like dip in wherever in Westeros or Essos we need someone and it's like, hey, you want to see how Roose Bolton died? <laughs> Bran can see it because, yeah, you know, you he can just move around. So I, I don't that's know. a great point. Yeah. Martin has talked about not wanting to do that with magic a lot, that if you, you know, start being able to do anything, then it yeah. becomes hard to understand why anyone would resist or do anything else in this world but try to attain that magic. On the other hand... What you were talking about is Bran being the kind of battle commander who's looking in on every plot. And that's already starting to happen in the Winds of Winter sample chapters. You have what is almost certainly Bran and Blood Raven warging into the Birds and Stannis' command center and talking to Stannis and Theon. (laughs) In Arya's released Winds of Winter chapter, Mercy, she has a dream where a tree with eyes is watching her as she runs. So that's Bran checking in on his sister, probably in her dreams. I won't be surprised if the local birds in the Vale suddenly take a great interest in Sansa. Like, there's (laughs) potential for Bran to show up in all these different plots. So I definitely think we're going to see some version of that before he leaves the cave, if he does. 
Yeah. Uh, perfect. All right. Next one. Uh, Sandor Clegane is alive. And my question to you is, uh, does a grave digger dig, dig graves? Like, yes, of course. What? Yes. what? No way. <laughs> my <laughs> sweet wounded son. Um, all right. Uh, Cersei Lannister blows up Baylor Sept, kills the Tyrells, the High Sparrow. Um, no, like big time. No, I don't think this is happening. Hmm. Uh, you guys can disagree with me. I think Cersei's going to do some shit with, with wildfire. But this to me struck me as we need to get rid of a lot of characters really quickly yeah. on the show. So let's just like wipe out these characters this way. Um, what do you guys think? Cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but in a post season six interview, uh, Benioff and Weiss mentioned something alluded to the fact that they had come up with this twist and it wasn't, it didn't come from Martin. I, I don't, I have to remember and, and do some research as to when, Exactly, and they're what exactly they said this in their exact wording, but it seems like to me that this was something that they invented because they wanted to kind of kill the Tyrells and the High Sparrow. And, and again, this kind of goes back to the question of of Young Griff. The Tyrells and the High Sparrow seem poised to play a major role in the storyline of Young Griff and John Connington and Ariane in the Winds of Winter. The fact that we don't have Young Griff, John Connington, or Ariane in Game of Thrones means that they needed a way to kind of get rid of these characters and they chose a pretty spectacular, in my opinion, way of doing it. And it's one of the show's highlights, in my opinion, the, uh, the first 10 minutes of season six, episode 10. It's fantastic. Yes, that is the best Evanescence music video of all time. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it is terrific. And I agree with both of what you're saying. I think that was kind of a, just a tying the threads together so we can snip them all off at the same time kind of thing. What I think is going to happen is that Cersei's going to try to do something yes. like that, but Jamie's going to stop her in a direct echo of the Mad King, and that's when you get kind of the climax of their story. And if Wildfire does actually get set off in the books, I think it's going to be Danny on accident who does that. Agreed. When she comes for young Griff, but we will see. All right. Uh, Tom commits suicide. My note here says he's a baby. No, like, no, there's <laughs> exactly. no way that, like, this tiny child is flinging himself out of a window. Um, I liked your idea of, of the Sand Snakes possibly being uh, responsible for Marcella and Tom, and I think that's what you said earlier. Um, but yeah. I don't think we're going to see a child commit suicide in the books. Yeah. Especially such a plump, happy child with his kittens, even for George, that just seems a little, unless he does, like, what. You're saying like he, he wants to feel edgy and like, you know, goes do something really George R. R. Martin-esque. But yeah, I think the Sand Snakes seem pretty vicious. Two of them are headed to King's Landing. They've talked about wanting to kill the Lannister kids before. Uh, that seems likely to me. I mean, you also have John Connington, too, who's talked about he needs to be Tywin, Tywin Lannister and he needs to put aside any type of ethics or morality on the battlefield. And that means killing children because Tywin Lannister was notorious for killing children like the uh, the kids of, of Rhaegar Targaryen. So to me, that feels very much like the way that Tommen and Marcel are going to go out either via the Sand Snakes or by John Coddington for, for different reasons. But yeah, I don't think he commits suicide. I love how Tywin's legacy is screwing up people that aren't even in his family at this point. Just like the, <laughs> the image of him is just mentally warped this entire generation. It's great. And yeah, there's just so many possible possible assassins for these two sweet children whom we love. Isn't that great? These sweet little blondies are gonna go. All right. Um, Uh. Daenerys sails with the Ironborn for Westeros, uh, allies with the Dorn uh, and the Tyrells. Uh, with the Dorn. Uh, that's the thing that one would say. Um, them Dorns. <laughs> them Dorns. Them Dorns will rise again. All right. So, um, I mean, obviously, she's coming for Westeros. We know that. Um, uh, the Ironborn, that's a question mark for me. And then the Dorn and the Tyrells is a hard a hard no for me. Uh, what do you guys think? 
I, I, I think Danny will ally with the surviving Ironborn from the Battle of Fire, the ones that make it through Victarion blowing the Dragonhorn, which is definitely something that's going to be happening very early in the Winds of Winter. As in terms of allying with Dorne and the Tyrells, not Dorne because Dorne will side with Aegon. Although I, I do wonder whether Daenerys will find allies in you know a house like the Danes, for instance, who seemingly haven't really taken much of a role and stake in Dorne Martell's plotting and conspiracies to kind of get his vengeance on Tywin Lannister and his family. Uh, I could see that working itself up, but the majority of Dorne's going to be siding with with young Griff. Their armies are already out in the field. They'll be coming north fairly shortly after the start of the Winds of Winter. The Tyrells is kind of a more interesting question because the Tyrells are going to be antagonists to Aegon Targaryen in the Winds of Winter. We know that a Tyrell army is marching against Aegon at Storm's End, so we can see a potential battle unfolding there in the Stormlands, uh, early, mid, Winds of Winter probably. I could see the Tyrells potentially being an ally of Daenerys Targaryen, if especially the ones out in the West who may need Daenerys' help to defeat Euron Targaryen. Euron Targaryen. Fucking Euron. He wishes. Gre- yeah, right? Euron Greyjoy and, and the and the Ironborn he has out there and his Eldritch Apocalypse stuff, which is, of course, Emmett's uh, field of study in, the, in A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm sorry, guys. Certainly I have to go true. and rape my Euron as a secret Targaryen um, conspiracy post <laughs> I, right now. He would love that. Euron would love nothing more than to be a Targaryen. He's such a Valyria fanboy. He, he, he would love it. But yeah, and there is one Tyrell closer to home. There is Loras, whom we don't know exactly what happened to him on Dragonstone. That's less kind of a, as a dangling thread in a feast for crows. But if he just happens to be on the island while on the mainland, his father Mace and his army are, are taken down by Team Aegon, he could potentially join Daenerys when she shows up on Dragonstone as a way of like getting revenge. And okay, you go after Team Aegon and put, we'll put you on the throne. And that's how I'll get revenge for my father. So <laughs> Loras, I was, I've always thought that maybe Loras will end up on Danny's Kingsguard that's a great for a theory. brief time. Uh, so uh, we'll, but we'll see how that goes. Love As it. I should just keep saying. <laughs> All right. So Ramsay and John battle outside of Winterfell. The Vale Knights arrive in the north. <laughs> Fuck you. And defeat the Boltons. Um, okay, so this is this is where I get to talk about my yes. own work again. Um, you know the the most the juiciest thing that I found in the Lion and the Rose script, um, which your um, like you know your your faithful redditors have been having I think a bit of a field day with, uh, is this note from George that. Uh, in that episode in season four, he wants to make sure that Ramsey's girls, his dogs, uh, are as fearsome as possible because in this note that he writes, a season or two down the road, they're going to square off against the Stark dire wolves mm. and that, you know, they want to be a credible threat. It can't just be like a complete annihilation of the pups. Um, so that, you know, sets off a lot of alarm bells for people in terms of like... <laughs> Who's gonna Who's gonna win, Ramsey versus Stannis? How do we get multiple Stark direwolves in one point? Considering right now they're all far flung in the books. Uh, the the best I think uh, theory that people can come up with is that Rickon, who is probably you know who is not dead and probably uh, you know on his way back, that like Rickon and John could reunite, and then you could get a uh, ghost and Shaggy Dog, uh, you know, doing doing some damage to Ramsey's dogs. Um, that's that's sort of been my interpretation of all of that what do you guys think i mean i'll, I'll talk a bit about the uh, the battle of the bastards and kind of a, at the end of this podcast but I, I broadly speaking i don't see ramsey and john having a huge battle outside of winterfell i mean if you i mean for a variety of reasons i i think that stannis wins the battle of ice and then takes winterfell for a for a short time 
I, I feel like I've written maybe one or two things about this in the past. I don't know. Um, but in terms of the, <laughs> but that was kind of a big reveal, right? The Direwolves versus the, uh, versus Ramsey's Hounds. And it, it struck me as kind of weird because I don't know about, about you guys, but when I read A Dance with Dragons and found out that Ramsey's dogs were all named after the women that he had murdered, it, it seems, it seemed to me that George was setting up something where the, dogs would play a part in Ramsey's downfall, which is something that we saw at the end of the Battle of the Bastards, where one of the, the dogs ends up eating uh, Ramsey Bolton. And I don't know, I, I just found that that note so strange, right? Because it, it feels like it's in conflict with that idea that the, the the dogs would fight the direwolves and the direwolves would probably win that battle. I mean, I mean, the, the direwolves are huge, right? They're the size of, of small horses at the, at, this, at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Having them fighting against the direwolves then kind of comes in conflict with them potentially being the ones that actually kill Ramsey. But I don't know. I mean, I actually haven't heard your thoughts about this yet. Why don't you give them? Yeah, I unsurprisingly agree with you. I think there's a lot of things that point to Stannis defeating Ramsey. One of which, as we were saying earlier, I think Stannis' story can't end until he makes the decision to burn Shireen. And he can't do that in the present circumstances, so he has to stay alive long enough to do it. And yeah, the, the direwolves versus the hounds, well, the part of me says, hell yes, that sounds amazing. And then the level, yeah, logistically in the books where the direwolves are so huge and so ferocious and even regular wolves are just kind of pathetic before them. I don't really see how you make this much of a fight. Although if there's two direwolves against against the whole pack, I, I suppose that could happen. But uh, I don't know. This sounds to me maybe just more as a thing as George wanted to happen or thought he could try it with the show maybe more than something that's going to happen for real in the books oh that's that's interesting and like I you know I, I will say from my perspective I'm not like yeah definitely need to see a pack of wolves you know like <laughs> I don't need to like see that um, necessarily uh, PETA definitely doesn't want us to see that but um, <laughs> I just uh, I just thought that was such a like the implications mm. of that note were so interesting to me but but I like your theory that like maybe something you want to try in the show that um, he was never going to do in the books. Okay, Rickon, Shaggy Dog, and Summer die. I say a big N-O to those. I mean, like, maybe eventually, but certainly not in the way that it happens. Um, And, I mean, like, okay, I think the bigger question is, like, when a direwolf dies, that has to mean something. When Grey Wind dies and when Lady dies, there's like very there's very specific reasons why they died. And the way that the show bumped these direwolves off, it was like, uh, do you see how I care about more about the direwolves than I do, Rickon? Um, <laughs> when the show bumped them off, it was just sort of like our CGI budget cannot uh, handle this, right? And so, you know, if Summer dies uh, when Bran fully becomes. Uh, the three-eyed raven, like, um, that makes sense because his starkishness has died, right? Mm. Um, and if Rickon, if Shaggy Dog, Dog dies at the same time as Rickon, like, I can see that happening, much like what happened with Rob. But, like, the way that it happens in the show where it's just sort of like, bam, 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 let's get rid of these, like, this extra padding, um, never, never in a million years. I think you make a great point that they were constrained by budgetary logistics issues that really just, of course, aren't present in the books. And I completely agree that when a direwolf dies in the book so far, it's presented with this real kind of symbolic weight and heft to it. Like, Lady dying from her name on down is the first kind of crack in Sansa's beautiful porcelain image of the world. And Greywind dying, of course, is the biggest symbol of the Stark cause going down with Rob in that moment at the Red Wedding. That's why you have the image of Greywind... Greywind's head on Rob's body, both in the house of the undying and yeah. literally at the twins. 
So yeah, I think if, if Summer dies, it will be in the capacity of Bran transcending his current state to something closer to godhood and farther away from the sweet boy we met at the beginning of the story. And, I mean, there is the, the last hero story that comes up in A Song of Ice and Fire about the, the lone hero who went off to defeat the others with all his companions, but he lost them all, even his dog. And Bran does echo his story, yeah. that story in some ways. So Summer could be playing the role of the dog, which I like to think about as much as anybody else, which is to say not. <laughs> uh, Rick, Rickon and Shaggy Dog, I think, are just such an open question and always have been. It's difficult for me to draw any conclusions based on what we saw on the show. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally agree. I mean, R- Rickon is... I mean, people have talked about Rickon being a shaggy dog story, right? And, and I, <laughs> I, I feel, I feel like, I feel like maybe originally Rickon was that way, but I mean, there's so many open possibilities that have that have come about since a Game of Thrones was published in 1996, and when George was imagining the story back in the early 90s. I, I don't feel like back in 96, George imagined Rickon going to Skagos and Davos going to save him at the at, in A Dance with Dragons and bring him back to Westeros. That feels like something that was that came up much later in the timeline of, of George's imagination. So I do wonder, there's there's so many open questions about Rickon. I mean, there's also like, I mean, it, it throws so many complications into the, into the storyline too if Rickon is alive. Because one of the things we'll, we'll talk about here momentarily is that John, you know, is is crowned king in the north and is becomes king in the north. Well, can he actually be king in the north if Rickon Stark is alive, if Bran Stark is alive? I mean, the, these are complications that I feel that the show kind of papered over because they're, I mean, that's that's like a three or four episode arc right there of who is the actual king in the north, Rickon or John, or who's the queen in the north? Is it Sansa for that matter? Which is something the show did kind of engage in a little bit in, at the end of season six and throughout season seven. But... I don't know. I, that's one of the things I really have, have no idea about what Rickon and Shaggy Dog's fate is ultimately going to be. All right. Um, Ramsey's killed by his dogs. This one I qu- quite like. I think that this oh, is yeah. going to happen. Yep. Um, is Sansa going to watch smirking? No, uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so. Theon might, but yeah, Sansa won't be there too. Yeah. Uh, Daenerys arrives back and Marine to destroy the slave fleet. Um, yeah, but I'm like, it, I mean, if, if this happens, if that's how Daenerys finally gets away from Essos um, I don't think it's going to be like a Dracarys sort of situation I think you know we we already know there's so many more factions in play yeah. in Marine in the book uh, so many other like you know sellsword companies etc cetera, etc cetera. her Kalisar is not going to be like one little footnote in a battle sort of thing <laughs> and so um, you know the battle of Marine whatever it eventually looks like is going to be so much different than how it plays out in the show yeah I, I, yeah there's I, I don't think that Danny comes back to Marine to destroy the slave fleet fleet. I think that the Battle of Fire gets resolved before Daenerys would ever come back to Marine. I, th- I think she has to come back to Marine at some point in the story. But she still is not going to be jumping on board a ship and then sailing off for Westeros immediately after Marine because as as Em and I talked about in a Valantis episode on Patreon, Danny is bound for Valantis at some point in the story. I mean, it's been foreshadowed extraordinarily heavily that Valantis is going to be one of the waypoints in Danny's journey back to Westeros, both in terms of the thematics behind what Danny's character is like after being in the Dothraki Sea and being with the Dothraki and bonding with with Drogon. Valantis has to be one of those points in the story where Danny will be faced with the, the decision whether to engage her draconic side or to engage her kind of motherly side and 
whether to let the city kind of destroy itself or free the slaves and all the kind of different themes that have kind of played interplayed with Daenerys with Daenerys' storyline since the Storm of Swords and since season three of Game of Thrones. Really important question for you guys. How is George R. R. Martin going to do this in two books? Uh, sorry. Ain't that the question, <laughs> right? Ain't that the question. All right. Um, John is crown king in the north. You guys, you already brought up some like lineage questions. If that, if they preclude this actually happening, I would say if he were to crown king in the north, which I don't mind seeing happen, <laughs> it would have to come after a major military coup, which you are you already said you also don't think is going to happen. So like, you know, if John is is crown king, like I just, I mean, I said yes here in the notes, but I gotta say in my heart, I'm like, oh, would they ever let a bastard? Probably not. So anyway, what do you think? I think Rob's will is the key yes. point here. Mm, he did have that yeah. document naming John Snow as his heir. It's kind of unclear what happened to it or who actually has it or where it is. But right. if it pops up, it might. I can see a scene where like there's these bunch of conflicting claims, and then John's will kind of cuts through as a compromise choice I to like settle the settle the divided faction. So that could be. But love otherwise, yeah, as you say, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, which would be great if like if all the talk about paper shields in the series, if this if that piece of paper did turn out to have significant weight after all, I think that that could be interesting. With oh, some I love politics it. Behind it, yeah, agreed. Uh, Arya, oh, Arya kills the waif, abandons the faceless men, and departs Bravos as Arya Stark. Uh, I don't know about killing the waif. Maybe you guys uh, have more evidence from those chapters to tell me that that's coming. Um, abandons the faceless men. I, once again, I don't know that I see that. I see her taking an assignment to Westeros and not bringing her back to Westeros, but I don't see, I don't see, like, it kind of felt like in the show Arya goes to Bravos so that they can do some fun face swapping shit later, <laughs> but not like because she's actually absorbed the lessons of the House of Black and White and stuff like that. And I, I think the Arya that comes back to Westeros in the book, because she will be coming back to Westeros, uh, is going to be even like more uh, effed up than the Arya we see on the show. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? I think she's definitely going to be a lot more murdery and she's going to have lingering issues from her time with the faceless men. But I mean, I think about that scene in the books where like she can't give away needle because it reminds her of home or in her, in her released, her, her released winds of winter chapter when she kills the one guy, Raph, the sweetling who, mm-hmm. because way back in the day he killed one of her friends back when she was just wandering around the riverlands. Like the faceless men aren't cool with that kind of killing outside the, the path, you know, just doing it on your own for your own shit. They've already like she's already skirted the line once when she killed that asshole singer back in Feast for Crows, and they took her eyes for that one. <laughs> That's true. I I don't know how they're re- going to react. Well, so my way of putting it, I agree that Arya in the books is not going to simply just walk away, restored to Arya Stark. But I wonder if the faceless men, like they do in the show, might just decide at some point, you know what, she's too dangerous and too Starkish, and we can't afford to keep her around anymore. We might have to just kill her off. I guess yeah. see something like that happen. I, that's a really good point because that bleeds into the next question: is like, does Arya kill um, Walder Frey? And you're right. Like, if she's gonna like start ticking off names on her list in earnest, uh, she can't do that under the under the like teachings of the Faceless Men. So she has to leave the Order in order to you know start start making her way down her list. Because um, I think you know. Well, I don't know. Does Arya kill Walder Frey or does someone else kill Walder Frey? I think it's Stoneheart in the Winds of Yeah, Stoneheart. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's an, it's another place where it, it reads like Benioff and Weiss 
condense the plot line. So they knew the Walter Frey was going to be killed by Stoneheart, but they already knew they weren't going to pursue the Stoneheart angle. So they kind of put their heads together and said, well, we have a character like Arya Stark who can change faces. And man, that would be fucking awesome if we had Arya come in there as, as a serving girl. And then she's the one that actually kills Walter, Walter Frey and then eventually kills the rest of his family too, wearing Walter Frey's face, which is a strange good scene, but it's still very strange. Some of the, some of the aspects of that, but yeah, I, I think that is most likely going to be Stoneheart there. There's been lots of uh, speculation that the, the brother without banners are planning a red wedding 2.0 when Davin Lannister, who is a, a cousin to the, the main Lannisters marries a fray girl, which is, he has been promised to in a feast for crows. And they're going to have a wedding at the, at river run. Um, I, I feel like that's going to be the spot where Stoneheart springs some sort of massive red wedding 2.0 and slaughters a bunch of Lannisters and, and Freys. But of course we don't know if Walter Frey is going to be there for the wedding himself. Cause he's what? 92, 93 years old. He's, he's pretty fucking old. So I, I I mean, maybe maybe Arya comes back and kills Walter Frey, but I, it more feels like that would be Stoneheart's role, especially given how poignant that will be for Stoneheart to kill Walter Frey, since Walter Frey was so instrumental in the death of her son and her her own death, for that matter, too. I think you're really right. Yeah. I think you guys are right about that, um, and I regret all of my decisions. Um, <laughs> the um, and especially that the way that scene plays out in the show, it's just such an amalgamation of. You know, because you've got the like the pie, you know, the like Manderly pie sort of like mm-hmm. thing in that. You know, they just try to like jam all this like cool vengeancey stuff into one scene, um, which you know gives you a like a knee jerk fuck yeah thing watching the show, <laughs> but like is maybe parceled out a bit more over other people in the books. Um, all right, uh, Barrack is alive, still leading the Brotherhood without banners. Uh, like no. Right. No, <laughs> time no. Not. <laughs> like, Finally, clearly dead. not. Which, yeah, I'm fine with them keeping Barrack around the show. Barrack Dondarrion is one of my favorite characters in the books. He's just this absurd badass in every level. This zombie sorcerer knight fighting on behalf of the people. He's just great. But and I, him giving way to Stoneheart is really emotional in the books and the kind of the corruption of the Brotherhood without banners and how sad his buddy Thoros is afterwards. Some of my favorite scenes in the books. But yeah. It, I'm totally fine with keeping Barrick around in the show. I think he's he's a lot of fun. I agree. I, I could listen to Richard Dormer read the phone book, and that also helps. Yes. To have Barrick Dondarrion around. All right. Jon Snow's mother is revealed to be Lyanna Stark. Guys, this is like the first I'm hearing of this. Are you telling me? <laughs> I, th- I that- thought she was a Shara Dane. I thought Ned was Jon's father. And Way. That- what? Okay. Did Ned have sex with his sister? What? <laughs> is he doubly Stark? What? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Double wolf. Obviously. Okay. 100%. That's season seven. <laughs> well done, well done. Yeah, moving on to season seven. What do we get for, for T-Wow in the most recent season of Game of Thrones? So we have Arya murdering the rest of House Frey, uh, which we, we kind of already covered. We think it's probably more in Stoneheart's direction, although Arya certainly does have the phrase on her list, and for good reason. Uh, Bran and Mira getting south of the wall. I think we've already covered that. I think Mira is by far the most likely of Bran's companions to survive. Yes. I think we can probably agree on that. Uh, especially since she has kind of nature badass skills going. That could probably be very useful in terms of getting Bran south alive. John forgives houses who fought with the Boltons. That's interesting. And there's the Boltons don't really have genuine allies in the North. They just have <laughs> allies of convenience. There is a character I absolutely love in the books who didn't make it at the show, Barbary Dustin who is like the the drunk Aunt Cersei equivalent, but in the North, basically. 
And uh, she's currently allied with Roos and Ramsey out of what looks like convenience and just kind of a hatred for the Starks. So I could see her potentially bending the knee grudgingly afterward and being forgiven by John. Maybe that's how she comes back into the fold with the Starks. That might be the equivalent of that scene in the books, because otherwise there's not really someone to latch on to for John to forgive, because they're probably all going to abandon the Boltons pretty quick. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Cool. Uh, Daenerys... <laughs> nice. Daenerys landing on and seizing Dragonstone. I think that's something we've all pretty much seen coming, yep. given that she was born there. It's like the natural landing point for an invasion of Westeros. So, so yeah, that, that one poignant scene where she's because Holmes and just puts her hand down on the sand. I think we're going to see some version of that in the books. And I hope, hope it's as emotional for sure. To go forward, you must go back. That'll right. be really fun exactly. because like that's that's a that's a an instance where I'm gonna give kudos to the show in terms of like yep. their location scouting and mm-hmm. how like beautiful mm-hmm. all of that Spanish location stuff that they used for Dragonstone was. And so like when we get that in the books, that's one example where we'll we'll have an image in our heads that will really probably do justice to what uh George ends up writing. So agreed. Yeah. Agreed completely. So the next couple I'm just going to put together here. Cersei and Euron make a betrothal alliance. Euron destroys half the Ironborn slash Dornish slash Tyrell fleets. And uh, a bunch of these Sand Snakes Dornish characters are killed in that battle against Euron. I don't think any of that's happening in the books. Euron seems pretty focused on the Reach and from afar Danny on getting dragons and other totems of sorcerer's power. He doesn't really seem that interested in the Iron Throne in and of itself. And I think if, if he does last long enough to be interested in that part of the story, I think he's probably going to be dealing with Danny. Yeah. I think Cersei's going to go down before Euron ever gets that far. I think in the show, they needed to give Cersei an ally so she just wouldn't get immediately punked by her much stronger <laughs> opponents. Yeah. They, they needed to give her someone who could, a wild card, someone who could kind of change the balance of power between her and Daenerys. And they kind of, I think, plucked Euron for that purpose. Mm-hmm. And but plus, yeah, I think, yeah, and plus, yeah, you know, in terms of that, the thing we talked about before in terms of blowing up the Sept, like uh, this clear a bunch of players off the board that they yep. want off the board and so that was just like a convenient way to do it but it's not at all how I would imagine it would go down with the books yeah agreed agreed yeah exactly I mean you're on you know he's Cersei obviously has poor taste in people just in general she hires Kyber and surrounds herself with idiots but I gotta imagine even she would look at Euron and, and, as he is in the books and go you know even I have standards <laughs> not, higher than this not that guy <laughs> he's I fucked the kettle blacks but this guy is nuts <laughs> So I doubt that. Uh, the Iron Bank agrees to loan money to Cersei. I think this is probably not happening in the books great. because as of Theon's released Winds of Winter chapter, the Iron Bank is going all in on Stannis. There's that great scene where like Stannis is trying to sign the papers, but the ink is frozen, so he just cuts his thumb and signs in his own blood because he's just a vampire emo. <laughs> so hardcore. So exactly. Um, this is so cool. Robert wouldn't do this. I'm signing in own blood. I'm awesome. Renly uh, would never. Uh. Renly would never. Exactly. So I think it's a little late in the game for the Iron Bank to switch sides again. Right. So I don't think we're going to be seeing that in the books. I mean, I think it's hilarious that they send, um, what's his face there? I, 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 they, Harris Swift. Tycho, Tycho Nistor. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Bank of Estancia. Yeah, Harris Swift, they send him to Bravos. Send him to Bravos. Send the, the most useless member of the small council to Bravos in hopes that this guy is going to bring the Iron Bank back in the fold and get them to loan money. Like, no, it's, it's not going to work out, bros. Not going to work out. Yeah, 100%. So, John attempts to make common cause with Daenerys, initially refusing to bend, in, bend the knee to her. Obviously, that's, you know, a vague plot setup, but I think some version of that seems very plausible to me. That John is intrigued by Daenerys and obviously sees her as preferable to Cersei, but is also troubled by some of the things he's heard and feels this loyalty to the North, but wants to unite Westeros against the others. So, I think 
that back and forth that we saw in the show in terms of his different interests and impulses there, I think we're going to see some version of that. That sounds right to me. Yeah, I agree. Well, beautiful. The Unsullied take Casterly Rock, but Euron burns the remainder of the Targaryen fleet. And I'm going to take this one together with the Lannisters taking Highgarden from the Tyrells. I think these were plot points they just came up with for their war in, in Season 7. Yeah. And some executed well, some executed not, but I don't think that's really how it's going to go down in the books. That Daenerys being said, is, sorry. Yeah. Well, that no, being, go ahead. That being said, I think, you know, we definitely have to have some sort of payoff for, like, the fact that Tyrion knows his way around yes. Cashley Rock, right? So that's, no, that's a good point. That's something the we need to and see. Line. Yeah, that's something we need to see, but, like, not this way. <laughs> not like this. The, yeah. the specific execution in terms of the, the military plotting, I don't think it's going to be exactly like right. that. There right. is this, then you get to the scene in Highgarden with Elena revealing to Jamie that she murdered Joffrey, drinking poison and dying. That was definitely one of the highlights of season seven, I think, for pretty much everybody, just in terms of the acting mm-hmm. and how Diana Rigg left the show as one of its, its greatest attributes. I would love to see it in the books logistically in terms of the geography and where these characters are heading. I don't see it happening. I don't see the Lannisters conquering Highgarden at any point. Yeah. I don't see Jamie rejoining up with Cersei's service in pretty much any capacity going forward, even a reluctant capacity. Uh, I think Olena's at Highgarden in the books, although I'm not sure now that I think about it. But yeah. I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think she's going to end up paying for Joffrey's death really in any capacity in the books. I will, I will give then Weiss and Benny off this, which is or whoever wrote that line, like tell Cersei I want her to know it was me. Um, mm. Remains like you know one of the show lines you know that we won't get from the books, but that that will forever be part of the Game of Thrones legacy. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, hundred percent agreed. So Daenerys and the Dothraki attacking the Lannister Tully army returning from Highgarden, defeat them in battle. I'm going to talk about this one a little bit later in the episode, because I think it is going to be similar in some respects, what happens in the books, but, but not in others. <laughs> uh, Randall and Dickon Tarly are burninated. I think that probably will happen. I, actually, I have no idea how old Dickon is supposed to be in the books, because he's young, significantly younger than Sam, so he can't be that old. He can't be like the the, the slab of man meat that we saw on the show. He gets married <laughs> in in feast, right? Because I think Brienne, when she's traveling right. north, so she has to be like at least thirteen or fourteen at, at the very least. Yeah, and Sam's supposed to be like eighteen ish, so that that makes sense. I mean, not uh, not a lot of sense yeah. if you think about it, because I mean, if you read Sam's like perspective yeah. to John, like it seems like the amount of abuse that Samuel suffered is significant, right? Might be something True. to bring up to George next time we talk with him, right? Oh, um, 100%. yeah, absolutely. Did you know that George R. Martin has told me the end of A Song of Ice and Fire? That's what Reddit thinks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, dang, it's true. That's impressive. Tell everyone. George R. Martin definitely told me the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. Well, as, we will um, spread that far and wide. Yeah, as soon as we get it, as soon as we stop hitting the record button, you can let us know and we won't tell anyone. We promise. Oh, I've already, exactly. I've already said it. It's, it's hidden it? in a hint earlier in this episode. Oh. Your listeners will just have to keep re-listening over and over again until <laughs> they eggs. figure that's it the out. Best. Yeah. So next up, Drogon is wounded in battle. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Somewhere. I mean, you don't want your dragons to be completely invulnerable, right? You in do want some to battle, having, somewhere, sure. In some battle, yeah. yeah. I mean, again, that's the kind of thing it feels like Martin can put that in wherever he wants, but it is the kind of thing he would want to get done at some point, just to demonstrate that, as he did with the death of Meraxes, one of the three initial Targaryen dragons in Westeros, just to show that tar- dragons are not invulnerable, yes. they're not a cheat code to get you to win every battle. I think that will matter to him quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I'm really ready for this next one. <laughs> John and a party go north of the wall to capture a white. They capture a white. Tell us your feelings, esteemed guest, on this most crucial of plot points. Um, I'm going to do a dramatic reading of my note that I've left here, which is, uh. 
<laughs> Hard same. Yeah. That's a no. I don't think anyone liked that. You I, that was. Wait, did you say you don't very, think anyone liked that? Plenty of people oh, well, liked people- it. <sighs> but, you know, they like the, they They are here for Game of Thrones, the action show, which is what it's become in certain ways. Sure. So they thought it was badass. I thought it was a shit yes, show. But just the so. t- it could, you could see the tension bleeding <laughs> off the screen as soon as you realized what this scenario actually was. That was like, another. Gendry, Gendry's just going to run. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that was another favorite uh, thing that I read in the scripts where they like literally called the extra wildlings that go north of them red shirts in the scripts. <laughs> and I was like, you assholes. <laughs> My eye is rolling to a medically difficult degree at the moment. But yeah, I don't think we're going to see anything like that. It is interesting the question of how you prove the other's existence. I'm sure that question will come up in the books, but I don't think it's going to be handled quite that shabbily. Now, now there's interesting, uh, kind of go along with this, we have in the recent publication of Fire and Blood Volume 1, and it's also in the excerpt, so if you've not read Fire and Blood Volume 1, go read George's uh, website, his his excerpt from, I think, October or so, 25th or so. Not that I know that by heart or anything like that. Um, Nerd. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, if, if you go read the excerpt, there is a scene where Alisane Targaryen, who is one of the traditional Targaryen queens from... 180 to actually, you know, almost over 200 years before the main event, before events from the main series. Uh, She travels north to visit the Night's Watchmen. And one of the things that she talks about in a letter she writes back to Jaehaerys is that she tried to take her dragon north of the wall, but every single time it came north of the wall, it kept turning away from the wall itself. And that was a really, I mean, to me, to me, it really felt that George, we talked about this earlier about George has been responding to events that have happened in this show with releasing sample chapters saying that, hey, things are going to be fucking different in The Winds of Winter and eventually at some point down the road of Dream of Spring. Here, that seemed like a very pointed, like, hey, look, what you saw on the show is not going to happen in the books. Daenerys Targaryen is not going to fly Drogon north of the wall to save this party of stupid idiots who try to capture a white and bring him south of the south of the wall to prove a point to Cersei. It's such a convoluted plot. I mean, I, I, I like season seven again, but that plot line was one of its weakest. And in fact, one of the weakest in all of Game of Thrones. But I do think that George is making a point to say, like, no, it's not going to happen in my books. It happened in the show, not going to happen in my books. And I feel, and, and the thing is too, um, to get like kind of a, a little bit in the weeds on the meta side, George wrote all the Jaharas and Alisane material between 2017 and 2018. So it was all likely written after oh. he had seen events from season seven. So I love knowing that. <laughs> feels you. very <laughs> much like a response to what he, what was seen on screen. Thank you for sharing that information. Um, Cause when, when I read that, I was like, Oh, okay. Okay, George. <laughs> um, but exactly. I don't know when he wrote it. Um, uh, the, I want to, this is maybe me skipping it, like many bullet points ahead on this list that we're going through, but like, that to me leans into this other thing where like I feel like it's pretty clear in the books if the wall comes down how the wall comes down Um, and it's not an ice dragon (laughs) so not to say an ice dragon won't occur in the books but like that's not you know the Night King is not blowtorching the wall down that's not what's happening so you know I can just imagine him with like the welder's mask on Safety first, kids. <laughs> message for, a message from the Night King, a PSA from the White Walkers, your friends. But yeah, speaking of, that leads nicely into the next one, which is Viserion dying and being resurrected as a white dragon on the show. Now, that was, again, something that just visually 
was just spectacular and wonderful. Mm-hmm. But it does seem unlikely that Danny and her dragons are going to be going north of the wall while the wall is still standing. That the wall's magic prevents exactly that sort of thing. And there is another method of messing with or taking over the dragons presented in the book. Euron has his horn dragon binder that he claims to have stolen from Valyria, although we learned later from Martin that Euron, in fact, got it from the warlocks of Karth, who are pursuing Daenerys. Mm-hmm. So that horn, as Jeff alluded to earlier, is currently heading into Slaver's Bay along with Victarion, who's planning to seize Danny and dragons for himself. Who knows whether how straight Martin is going to play this, whether Dragonbinder is going to work, whether it's going to partially work, if it's going to work on one dragon. There is the Red Priest, Makuro, hanging out with Victarion, who seems interested in the horn and may have been messing with it. But all of which is to say, if there is a story beat of one of Danny's dragons going nuts or going evil or being taken away from her, I think that is as much a viable mechanism as the White Walkers for that. Yeah. That's so interesting. I don't believe in the horn. Um, really? But, uh, yeah. Solid. <laughs> But well, uh, I, I do believe that something is going to happen that we are going to get like dragon versus dragon at some point. But I, mm-hmm. for me, I've always thought of it as like a war gang, someone, you know, controlling the dragon, sure. which is something that I think the others could do. I will say really quickly to go back to our discussion of the Night King, something that came um, in the close reading I did of of George's script Um he has in his original script of the Lion and the Rose, when Bran is about to like when Bran's about to put his hand on the weirwood tree and have all those visions, Jojen in his script, his original script says, uh, it's Jojen who says, like, he's watching us. <laughs> uh, he can see us, he's watching us. And that like sounds like probably he's talking about the three-eyed raven. But what's interesting to me is that in the final cut of the episode, that line is over the very first appearance we get of the Night King, which is a flash in Bran's vision. Interesting. So like is it possible that Jojen mm. is talking in, even in George's version, that Jojen's talking about a Night King-like figure when he says he's watching us? Um, and, you know, so if a Night King figure exists, whether or not he's called that in George's book, if he exists, if a leader of the others exists, um, and he can watch and warg and do all this sort of thing, like, could he couldn't like mind control a dragon? And I could see that happening. That feels likely to me. So. Yeah, we got to go. That's a great point, shout though. out to Manu and his saddle theory, which we talked about in Brand's cool. fourth chapter. So a few episodes back on the regular. Gotta podcast. love a Manu theory. Got yeah, to. absolutely. He's the best. <laughs> uh, yeah, can't wait to have him on again. Speaking of people who die beyond the wall, <laughs> there's also the death of Thoros of Mir in the show as, as part of the whole White Hunt plot, which is certainly sad. Thoros is one of, also one of my favorite characters mm-hmm. in the books. He's a really, really sad character who finds his religion and then loses it again. Uh, I, I suppose it's possible that a faction of the Brotherhood will in fact turn north at some point in the books. They're caught up in the kind of the R'hllor side of the story, so it makes sense they'd go for fire meeting ice and... Maybe after the Lady Stoneheart plot that we were talking about earlier has resolved itself, the surviving members of the Brotherhood head in that direction and Thoros dies there. I don't know. I think it's also possible that, as with keeping Beric around, they just kind of needed some supporting characters for this part of the story. So it wasn't just Jon beyond the wall. Yeah. And they just needed, and they needed one of them to die, but they had plans for all the rest. So it's like Thoros is the least developed and most expendable of these characters. So he'll be our death. It might have just been that. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree. They should have called him Thoros of Red Shirt. <laughs> <laughs> he is a red, red god, red shirt, buddy. Yep, that's what you get. He wears the red robes too, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Another one who dies beyond the wall is our old missing uncle, Benjamin Stark, <laughs> who is not cold hands, as we mentioned earlier. <laughs> but yeah, he dies for good in that capacity in the show. And 
almost as much a guarantee as Benjamin's coming back, I think, is Benjamin dying shortly after he comes back. I think that's Martin's going to bring him back to drop some information about where he's been, about the others, maybe some stuff about John's backstory, if he knows about Rhaegar and Lyanna. But when the White Walkers show up, I feel like a character like Benjamin is pretty much doomed to a noble death. Benjamin's are, I mean, we've already seen Benjamin back in the books because he's also Dario Naharis. I don't know if you guys knew this. Of course. <sighs> yes. <laughs> that is a theory. Told by his, by Sorry, many can esteemed you, luminaries. Can you, when, I stopped, when I start dropping like terrible theories on you, that's how, how you know uh, <laughs> I've, been, I've been talking too long. Um, uh, I mean, like, Benjamin as cold hands doesn't die for good. I, I, I agree I agree with the, what you said, I mean, in terms of like, he's definitely coming back and he's definitely not living much longer after he comes back. He might come back dying. <laughs> You know, he'll like, get one. Yeah, exactly. He'll get one scene. He'll yeah. drop a couple truth bombs and then out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I wasn't super happy with him. I mean, I didn't really enjoy the scene a whole lot because it was like he just kind of was in, saved John, and then just like rode off. And you're like, wait, don't you have something to tell John? Like something important about? I his- have so many questions. <laughs> like, yeah. Next yeah. time I see you, we'll talk about this. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's. I mean, I mean, Ned did the same thing to John, but um, I liked true. it uh, at least a little bit more than the brand scene. <laughs> This is like one of my favorite things that the show did of all time, where Benjen brings Bran and Mira back to the wall. He's like, hey, guys, I can't cross the wall because of magical reasons that um, will actually wind up mattering on the show. But like, I can't do that. Uh, So you drag yourself down. I'm going to take the horse. Exactly. (laughs) Bye. You tired girl and you crippled boy drag your own asses down to the wall, which is a significant distance away. Bye. Like that was, I'm sorry. So stupid. No, that's, that's true. It's wonderfully petty on vengeance part. (laughs) (laughs) So something else that we see, of course, in season seven is John swearing allegiance to Daenerys Targaryen as queen. I don't know if this is going to be a bend the knee situation or a joining of forces situation. Yeah. I think John is going to, in some capacity, acknowledge Daenerys Targaryen as monarch. I don't know if it's going to be his monarch or, or man and wife, king and queen, or if that's <laughs> going to be the goal. I don't think, I don't think he's going to not do that, I'll say. Yeah, I agree. I don't think, like, bend the knee. No, I won't bend the knee. Bend the knee. No, I won't bend the knee. I will bend right. the knee now because I love you. Like, that's not how it's <laughs> going to happen, but uh, some sort of struggle of power for sure. And and eventual, obviously, eventual allegiance as foretold to us by Alan Taylor. Mm, yeah. But, of course, the director of the hit film, Terminator <laughs> Genesis. <laughs> Poor Alan. The warring factions meeting and agreeing to a truce to deal with the threat of the White Walkers. No! I'm... Sorry. Not like that, anyway. Sorry. Anyway. I mean, no, again, like, yeah, there's got to be some kind of conversation between some people about this kind of important central topic to the series, which is we need to stop fighting so we can deal with the White Walkers. That's arguably the theme of the story to a certain extent. I don't think it's going to necessarily happen in the context of King's Landing. Yeah. And I don't think it's going to involve Cersei and the Lannisters. I think they're going to be kind of wiped off the table as a functioning power player by the time the discussion about the others becomes a thing this is so fun i haven't talked to people like hardcore book people in this like in this death for so long and i just like forgot because i've been so steeped in the show for so long that we all think that cersei's dead way earlier <laughs> you keep mentioning it i'm like oh yeah cersei's I can't definitely dying she does, a hell of, she does a hell of a job i can't blame them for keeping her around no i love lady heady for sure i don't yeah no shame in yeah. the game but like oh yeah oh yeah book, book cersei's toast i forgot anyway right. i mean the, the other thing too is like it feels like one of those things that was extremely streamlined because 
in in the sh- in the books, I mean, Emma and I have talked about this in various capacities, but one of the things we expect in the Winds of Winter or or Dream of Spring is that Daenerys Targaryen will be faced with a with a major choice. She'll know or hear rumors that the others are coming south, and that Stannis and Jon Snow and anyone who's up in the north, north of the Neck, is fighting them. And whether she's going to, but then she also has the threat of Aegon Targaryen and the Iron Throne there, and she has to make a choice, you know, to take the throne to save a kingdom or save the kingdom to take the throne sort of idea. The same thing that Stannis faced back in A Storm of Swords. And I, I feel like that they kind of streamlined that to get the point where everyone's joined together at the same side, at the same time. Whereas I think it's more likely that we're going to see a Daenerys Targaryen who's going to end up fighting Aegon in the south for... I don't know how long of a time it's going to really take for, for, for Daenerys to win, but Daenerys will defeat Aegon at some point, hopefully early in A Dream of Spring, before turning north. And that will have consequences because it will mean a lot more people are going to die in the north while Daenerys wars with Aegon in the south. But I, I, I don't know. It feels like, it, like I said, it feels very streamlined from what we think is going to happen from the books. And I understand why the show did what they did. And I think the Dragon Pit scene was a really good scene. I mean, it's very tense. Um, the actors all do a fantastic job. Daenerys flying in on Drogon is a really cool shot. Uh, I just, I, I think it's not going to be occur in the same sort of fashion that we saw on the show. It's not going to be like all your favorite characters together for the first <laughs> <Exactly>. time. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Reunion episode. <laughs> Kyburn staring at a zombie arm like he wants to marry it is one of the best things I've ever seen on television. <laughs> That's so very I, true. I, I, I can't fault that scene. <laughs> Anton Lesser, who plays Kyburn, he doesn't get much to do, but he nails that role. Mm. So Everything I've, he, I've, yeah. I've, that wonderful thing about Kyber where he looks normal, but then you start talking to him for more than five seconds and you go, what is wrong with you? <laughs> so he nails that. It's true. Next up, uh, Cersei plans betrayal in spite of that uh, aforementioned truce and has hired the Golden Company. Again, I'm going to touch on a little bit of these topics uh, later on in the episode when we get to kind of zooming in on some of these elements. But yeah, this is, again, one of those things that touches on the young Griff plot and has ripple effects that change because of it. Jamie abandoning Cersei and heading north. Obviously, in the books, he's kind of already abandoned Cersei to a certain degree. He had that great put-this-in-the-fire moment at the end of A Feast for Crows in which he threw her letter calling for aid into the fire. Um, it's debatable whether they meet again. If you think Jamie kills Cersei in the books, then they're probably going to have one last, final, very violent confrontation. If not, then he won't. But I could definitely see if he gets through that and survives it, that turning north will be his next eventual move. That That definitely makes sense to me, given that... He's caught up in trying to save the realm and be a better knight and be the version of himself he always wanted to be. That seems like a logical step. I mean, in, in, in Storm, he has that dream, that werewolf dream, where he's, he's sleeping on the stump and he's shown, he, he's seeing himself as Azora High Reborn with a flaming sword fighting against the shadows from the night and stuff like that. I, mm-hmm. I, I think it'd be really awesome if Jamie heads north. I mean, if we com- kind of combine the idea we were talking about earlier that the surviving members of the bro- of the Brotherhood Without Banners head north after the Riverlands plot, perhaps Stoneheart hears about Arya and Sansa being alive and being up in the north, and she takes the surviving brothers up north. That would make sense. And then if Jamie's still with the Brotherhood Without Banners, then he would go north as well. But again, that kind of comes to conflict with the idea that Jamie's the Valonqar and... All sorts of complications there. I'm sure these are things that George is kind of struggling with in writing The Winds of Winter. Next up, <sighs> Daenerys and John bang on a... <laughs> All right, let's talk about this. If you're Daenerys right. Targaryen and Jon Snow, you're going to bang everywhere. So could one of those places be a boat? Sure. 
That's Who's what I to say? say about that. You make an excellent point. There's, they, I'm sure they have a long list to go down. You know, <laughs> On me, a dragon, me, you know. I was just about to say, me, being a terrible person, wants them to bang on Dragonback, because that would be great. But yeah, anywhere. Like a, you know, a dirigible of some kind <laughs> on the Iron Throne. Yeah, I mean, they're they're hot and young, so. Top of the wall, uh, Winterfell Crypt. Top of the wall, uh, Winterfell yeah. Crypt. Every, every at, abandoned at the Trident. Castle. I dreamed I was at the every Trident. Every abandoned castle along the wall, making the 19. <laughs> Billing <laughs> rubies, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. So, oh, yeah. shit. I don't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, a boat is as likely as anywhere else. Sure, sure. Why not? I mean, I think they bang. I mean, I think that's pretty right. I mean, in, in the books and the show, they bang. I mean, that's that's it. As Alan Taylor foretold. <laughs> as, as foretold by the director of Terminator Genesis, yes. Next up, uh, Rhaegar is revealed as John's father. Again, duh. It's <laughs> brand new information. <laughs> I am looking forward to seeing how that information is parceled out in the books. There's a lot of people who could potentially contribute to that. Benjamin, as I said, Howland Reed, who's always been mentioned as the one other guy who knows. Bran has his visions. So we could see kind of a multiple puzzle pieces kind of situation with that one. Yeah. We will see. Related is the next one. Rhaegar got an annulment from his wife and married Lyanna. This is definitely important if the books want to set up Jon as a potential heir to the Iron Throne, whether he follows through on that or not. He kind of has to not be a bastard for that to be the most prominent claim. And that would also be an interesting twist on his story if he learned he wasn't a bastard after all. It definitely has an impact on how you feel about Rhaegar, but so much of Rhaegar is shrouded in mystery that we're going to be changing how we feel about him in some capacity once we learn more about what actually went down. I don't know if you heard about this uh, when you were at the first Con of Thrones uh, in Nashville, but there was Mm. a literal physical altercation in one of the panels over whether (laughs) or not annulments were like a thing. What? Really? heard about this. Please tell the story. (laughs) I, I wasn't there. Uh, I walked into that room after it had happened because I think like trivia was uh, uh, directly after and I walked in and someone was like, oh my God, here's what you missed. (laughs) And apparently, I mean, like this is a very lovely con. I love going. I've never seen any other kind of altercation even close to this, but I love that it was over like, could there be an annulment in Westeros? It's just like the nerdiest shit I've ever heard. So, yeah. And there was like shoving of some kind. Is what I heard. Wow! So, wow! You know. Fandom is great. <laughs> it's a positive thing. Anywho, last one, the big one: White Walkers assault the Wall. The Night King uses White Walker Viserion to bring down the Wall. They advance south into Westeros. Obviously, the others are going to attack the Wall and move south into Westeros and threaten everyone at some point in the books. That's about as guaranteed a thing as you can imagine <laughs> up there with R plus L equals J. Whether they use White Walker Viserion to do it is open question. As, as Joanna said, there's definitely another method put forward in the books in terms of bringing down the wall. Yeah, I, I don't think it's Blowtorch Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Um, oh, how do I think it's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are ancient enchantments on this wall and things cannot cross the wall. And if they cross the wall, then the wall comes down. Is that right? Isn't that right? No, that, that, that is definitely it's one capacity death. of it, especially if Bran comes back uh-huh. with something he's not supposed to I do. Mean, that's, I mean, there's, that's, that, there's that, the Black Gate. I think I think Bran coming crossing back, uh, you know, uh, going back down across the wall, uh, something he's like not supposed to do, uh, mm. but he's doing it maybe for very Starkish reasons, and maybe that's a unifying thread that we could say for like 
Arya abandoning the Faceless Men for Starkish reasons, yeah. John abandoning the Night Watch for Starkish reasons, and Bran coming down, you know, like all of them feeling the wolf pack pull, uh, and like, you know, maybe some disastrous effects of that before hopefully a, you know, an ultimate <laughs> victory or a better street victory anyway. So, I, yeah, I like that a lot. I always thought that. When when the Night King touched Bran in season six and then broke the enchantment right. around yes around the cave that's what we all thought it was like very much pointing to Bran coming south of the wall and you're like oh shit Bran's going to accidentally cause the fall of the wall and allow the White Walkers to get through and then there you and that's the thing like I I do wonder like was that the original idea and as they're sitting in like the uh, the writers room and, and plotting out season seven like. Uh, what's more metal than having a kid come across the wall that causes the wall to come down and they yeah. decide on on Viserion t- torching the wall and, and bringing it down as being the much more cinematic way of, of the wall coming down. I don't know. I, I, I do wonder about that. No, I think if Bran crosses the wall and like, I don't know what happens, like a crack forms, like, what, yeah. you know, how do they show that versus the dragon climax? I think you're right. And I and I agree with you. This is like this was like a repeat of my like Jon Snow's coming back wrong thing. I was like, guys, Brand's definitely taking down the wall <laughs> of the show. Why else would they like put all these clues here? And then I was wrong. But but at that point, I was so like numb to being wrong. I didn't care. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they like they laid that track. You're right. And then they decided to go in a different direction. And I think, you know, I think that had to have been the plan at some point. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. So that was obviously a wide breadth of major and minor plot points that happen across seasons four through seven that may or may not pop up in the Winds of Winter. So let's let's zoom in a little bit on our favorite topics and talk about how the interaction is going to go between books and show on that subject yeah you know it, it might seem like the show has spoiled a significant amount of what's going to happen in winds or dream of spring and you know as we talked about many of the points are in some sort of keeping with the direction the show is going but it's really possible in my opinion that many of the events aren't going to happen in the books or will have a completely set of a completely different set of circumstances leading up to them but, you know, in like reciting all those reveals we saw in Game of Thrones that might unfold, it, it's really it's really a lot. So I figure we would kind of close out here a little bit by picking our three favorite topics to talk about and discuss them in some depth and then talk about the one event which 100% will absolutely occur, both in books and the show, and you're stupid and ugly if you think otherwise, which you guys should probably already know what we're going to talk about there. So for <laughs> me, one of you, you'll find you'll be shocked to learn that the topic I chose was the Battle of Ice that we saw in season five and then in season six in the Battle of the Bastards. Um, the Battle of Ice, as we know from the end of A Dance of Dragons, is the planned battle between Stannis Baratheon and his combined forces of Southern Knights, Relore Believers, and his northern allies that he has up with him just three days outside of Winterfell. In the in the show, it's reimagined for John to take down the Boltons, and as for why that is, yeah, there's been quite a lot of theorizing <laughs> that you know Benioff and Weiss they hate Stannis or some such. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I would agree to the extent that maybe they didn't understand Stannis from the novels, or maybe more generously that they reinterpreted Stannis to fit the character they needed for the show, or, or maybe they hate him. I, I don't know. I, I feel like. There's a wide breadth of, you know, armchair psychoanalysis of David Benioff and Dan Weiss the same way that Joanna does for for George R. R. Martin. However, I think that a major change for the show was that the show writers decided to cut Stannis' Stannis Baratheon's arc short. Why they did that is, you know, kind of a source of considerable debate, as you've 
probably if you're listening to this podcast, you know well by now that that debate has been going on since 2015. But the major reason I think that it's going on is that when they met George in 2013, they realized the scope that Martin was planning for the remaining two novels in A Song of Ice and Fire. And they realized that they only had four or five seasons left to go. And they kind of decided that the, one of the things they were going to trim down was Stannis' arc. And I, I understand why. As, as much, Even as much as I would, love, would have loved to see a legitimate Battle of Ice and Battle of Winterfell between Stannis and the Boltons, I, I understand why, and even as a Stannis, so to speak. They didn't really have enough space for Stannis' plot and the main story, which is our heroes versus the White Walkers. But I also see where still having Stannis around makes for a really complicated story for Jon Snow's rise as King of the North or Sansa Stark's rise as Queen of the North, however the the books are going to take it. And all those complications that are going to flow out between two kings in the North and the books. So the solution they decided on was that Stannis would die in the Battle of Winterfell would die in the Battle of Winterfell, and then they gave Stannis' arc, recruiting the Northern Houses, marching on Winterfell, a cavalry charge that saves the day. Of course, in the books, it's most likely going to be the Manderleys that save Stannis at the Battle of Ice. In the show, it's the Vale Knights who, who save Jon Snow um, in the Battle of the Bastards. And they made it into the form of the Battle of the Bastards. You know, maybe, maybe Joanna, we can have you back for that episode. I don't know. We, Em and I have talked about doing a full-out analysis and talk about that, that episode. It's, <laughs> it's one of those... It's, one of those it's, it's crazy to me because... One of the things that just kind of like grinds my gears is that people talk about the Battle of Bastards as being the greatest episode of Game of Thrones, and it's fucking not. Like it's, it's really not. It's really. I mean, there there are great moments, and there's great cinematography, great music, great acting, but all of the ways they got to the Battle of Bastards, all the plot mechanics and the stupid twists they have, Sansa not revealing information to Jon Snow when he really could have used that information, just it it, it boggles my mind and. Having Littlefinger and the Vale Knights show up at the very last minute, of course, I get it. George does it in the books, you know, at the Battle of the Blackwater. Stan is showing up at the Battle of the Wall and the Storm of Swords. But really, 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 really was not my favorite episode of Game of Thrones. One of my least favorite, actually. And I know that's, that's probably a very controversial opinion because everyone thinks it's the best episode. It's fucking not. No, it's one I share. Like, I, I, the two times I've been most divided with the fandom is number one, Sansa's Wedding Night. Um, which is not that like a lot of people liked it, but I think a lot of people like just thought my reaction to it was extreme. And then the other is uh, my opinion about all the bastards, where I would place it very low on the list of battle episodes. Like Blackwater's yes. above it, Hardhome's above it, yes. you know, like that sort of stuff. And so I have a lot of respect for Miguel Sapochnik, who I think is an excellent director, and I think his craft is really, really yes. elegant. But like even like the Field of Fire battle that we got, the, you know, this season, I appreciated so much more because of like yeah there was it was it was weird lazy writing it was character assassination of Sansa and of like other characters and like just bumping off Rickon and all all of it it was just like really very frustrating to me so yeah I'm happy to come and alienate anyone who loves the Battle of Bastards (laughs) by ranting about it if you want to in future we would absolutely love that no I agree completely I think Stannis is useful as a blunt object to take down the Boltons in the books. I think if you want to strip him down to his plot function, that's what he's there to do. More thematically, I think this relates to why characters like Quentin and Young Griff were never really going to fit in the show, is that Martin is very interested in characters who think they're the protagonist or think they're the heroes or being set up as the central focus and then them finding out that they're not. I think that's something that just interests him in terms of drama and also interests him in terms of using that as a vessel for critique about fantasy genre and the yes. kind of the values that go with it. That 
kind of thing works really well in long, dense, ruminative novels, but this whole character storyline is just a tease and kind of is a reflection that he's not that important. That doesn't necessarily translate well to a 10-episode-per-season 10 10 show. So a character like Stannis, I think you can remove earlier in the show, and I think a character like Quentin and Young Griff you can cut out entirely. I think they add a lot of really interesting dimensions that make the main character stories more interesting. I think John and Danny benefit from these kind of other storylines orbiting around them in the books, but if you're going to streamline the show, and you absolutely have to once you get past season three or so, I much much as I would love to see more Stannis material as a big fan of his character in the books, I do understand this decision. I don't think they executed it superbly well, <laughs> either with Stannis' downfall or the Battle of the Bastards, as you were saying, but in terms of the far-off decisions they were making in the writer's room before they executed any of that, I understand that decision completely. Yeah, and the, I mean, the last thing I'll say in terms of to go back to me saying I really love reading um, embittered interviews from actors after they left Game of Thrones. <laughs> Stephen yeah, Delane, Stephen, yeah. like, you know, did not, you know, he, he gave this interview to, I think it was the Radio Times where he said, like, when they asked him why did Game of Thrones, he was like, money. <laughs> and he was, you know? And then they were like, what's the main thing you got out of it? And he was like, money. So, like, Stephen Delane did not want to be there. So I don't know if that's at all, like, a, you know, a meta factor of, like, okay, well, if you've got an actor on the show who, like, doesn't really want to be there, like, and you can cut his character out like maybe you do you know maybe Stephen Delane's like hey guys thank you for this opportunity I really appreciate it I don't fucking want to be here anymore can you take me off the show I don't know you know and they wouldn't do that for every you know they wouldn't do it for like a Kit Harrington but like they're like well we could take Stannis out now so maybe you know I I agree that Delane didn't want to be there I mean he said that basically they didn't really tell him much about his his character they, I think he had said something, and it was in a, it was at a foreign interview, so it might have been a little bit mangled in translation. But essentially, he said, uh, "I was told that I won a couple battles, and I was a military commander, and uh, I was the younger brother of the king." And you're like, "Wait, uh, there's a little bit more to to, to the standards in the books that, that we know of." Now, I, I will say one thing in, in favor of of the battle. Um, in season five that Stannis lost against the Boltons. I, I do think the send-off for Stannis was very much in keeping with Stannis from the books that go on, do your duty thing to Brienne, I think was an oh, sure. excellent, excellent line and a great uh, acting on the part of, of Stephen Delane and, and, Gwen, and Gwendolyn Christie. Um, that scene for sure is very much in keeping with who Stannis is in in the books, especially. And I, I, I felt like, you know, as, as much as people want to say that Benioff and Weiss hate Stannis. I, I don't. I, I really don't think so, and I, and I think it's it's evidenced by them giving Stannis a very uh, a send off that was in keeping with the character from the books. And I think it's you know if if that is the that could be could very well be Stannis's final line in the books. And that would be a fantastic final line for for Stannis, but I didn't have because it's very much in keeping with the character that George has drawn, you know, for twenty plus years now. So I, I was okay with that that decision at least. I'm, I don't think they hate Stannis either, and I think there's plenty of good reasons to hate Stannis even if they do. I mean, Stannis as a character is always written to kind of hover on the edge between a guy you, you like and a guy you hate, often for the same reasons. So yeah. that's fine. I, For me, it was more like Stannis in the books, is his, just his story is very precisely constructed in terms of which beats fall where. And there are other characters like Tyrion where you don't necessarily need a huge structure because you're kind of carrying his, his personality is kind of carrying the scenes a lot of the times on the show. You kind of just let Peter Dinklage talk. Sometimes it doesn't always work, <laughs> but like you can rely on Tyrion's personality to carry through with Stannis. What attracted a lot of people to him as a character in the books was exactly the arc that he has. So if you kind of hand wave the details, I think it starts turning to mush, which I think that's what happened on the show more than they hated Stannis. 
I think they didn't necessarily have a strong structure to his story, and I think he, more than many other characters, suffers from not having that strong story structure, because then it really is just an unpleasant man being unpleasant in scenes. Yeah. Although I will say, I do love... Like Stephen Delane being irritated, not knowing what's happening and wanting to leave is the most standard thing imaginable. <laughs> so it does kind of fit on a, on a meta level. It is perfect that that's how Stannis would go in the show. Not well. I course. love Stephen Delane in that role, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. One thing I discovered, um, once again, I'm, I'm, they're not paying me to promote this, but like one thing I discovered <laughs> going to Con of Thrones is like I knew people love Book Stannis, but I didn't know how much people love Book Stannis until I went to Con of Thrones. And like we do- I remember your expression on that count, actually, I think, from one of, one of the great debates when we kept yeah. bringing up Stannis. We mm-hmm. do these great debates, and like Book Stannis kept winning all, and like Book Stannis <laughs> is guaranteed to like win these great debates, like more often than not. And it's just sort of like, really? I mean, that, that was the thing I was surprised by the first year and then came to expect the second year so um we, yeah we, we there are an embarrassing amount of us that's true <laughs> we are legion <laughs> exactly so uh what i wanted to zoom in on was one of the clear highlights of season seven which was as we've said before the field of fire 2.0 the battle of the food trucks whatever you want to call it when danny went full i love the smell of napalm in the morning on jamie's men that battle scene I think this is an interesting case study because I do think something like that is going to happen in the books, but not a, there's some details changed that show how, as we were saying earlier about the uh, scene with Arya the twins, the show is kind of amalgamating various elements from the books and putting them together. I think we are going to see Danny and the Dothraki going up against a, a faction waiting for them when they arrive in Westeros, but that there's going to be considerably more military might on that anti-Danny side. And that anti-Danny side won't be the Lannisters, but rather supporters of her ostensible nephew, King Aegon Targaryen, sixth of his name, more known colloquially as Young Griff. Now, we know that Season 8 will feature Cersei's plans to use the Golden Company to secure her rule, which makes sense. The Lannisters love their gold. (laughs) But the swords in the books are not backing Cersei, but rather Young Griff. They are his his kind of base of power. Jon Connington wins them over to Young Griff's side. Young Griff convinces them to invade Westeros with him. And at the end of A Dance with Dragons, they are doing so to try and topple the Lannisters, not support them. I think if you look at Varys' speech at the end of A Dance with Dragons when he's giving that big monologue about how he's going to continue sowing dissension among the various factions so so Egan can rise, and if you look at Ariane's release, The Winds of Winter chapters, in which she's considering joining uh, Egon and that you learn that John Connington has taken Storm's End, it looks like to me that Team Egan is going to succeed at this goal, that kind of the momentum has aligned behind them. You've got Dorne as a natural ally. The High Sparrow, I think, seems like one yeah. too in the books, because Young Griff was trained by a Septa. And he's not one of those inconveniently incest baby Targaryens. His mom, <laughs> at least ostensibly, was a Martell, so the the Faith wouldn't have to deal with that question again. And uh, most tellingly, I think, in terms of relating it to the show, the captains of the Golden Company in the book say they have, quote, friends in the Reach mm. that will turn on the Tyrells and be natural allies for them. And who might those friends in the Reach be? Well, our boy Jeff has theorized, <laughs> as have others. That first and foremost among them will be our least favorite father south of the wall, Randall Tarley. <laughs> Such a he, dick. He who was... I know, right? He's the absolute worst. He, of course, was present at said field of fire in the show, was one of the main commanders on Jamie's side, and was burnt to a crisp afterwards, along with his son and heir, Dickon, by a victorious Danny. So in The Winds of Winter, I think you could have Randall Tarley backing Young Griff, along with Dorne and the Sparrows, that, that faction taking King's Landing, taking the throne. You have that vision in the House of the Undying of the crowds cheering for the Mummer's Dragon, who was almost certainly Young Griff. Mm-hmm. But as 
again, Jeff and many people have talked about, given the darker turn Daenerys took at the end of A Dance with Dragons, as well as season six and seven, I think she's going to consider young Griff not to be an ally, but a usurper, mm-hmm. probably not even her real nephew, and come for him with fire and blood. So all of all of which is to say, when Danny and the Dothraki ride into battle in the books, they will be, I think, going up against Randall Tarly in some capacity, as they were in the show. But he's going to be supporting Aegon, not Cersei, and he's going to be backed by the Golden Company, which really excites me because the Golden Company is is really logistically advanced yes. team of soldiers who all of these different special skills and are really disciplined and are f- famously fierce in battle. So watching them go up against the Dothraki, who have this completely different like shock and awe tactics for battle, like I'm I'm not I'm not a big military guy the way Jeff is. I don't know battle logistics all that well, but that's something I think could be even more metal than it is in the show. Yeah. I love like I, when I read this uh, that that you know your your notes that you wrote for yourself earlier, and uh, you know I'm assuming you've talked about this elsewhere. I just haven't seen it. Like I am so mad now that I didn't get to see this <laughs> battle. I I actually well, I mean I do like the field of, the field of fire, and thank you for not calling it by the stupid name that the show calls it. But like I do like how that played out in season seven except for the very end of it um and except for the part where they like tried to make us believe someone major was going to die and then when they had no intention to kill anyone major but like that was lame but the like the once again to talk about like the craft of something like you mentioned watching fighters with different techniques clash against each other like watching those like dothraki blood riders like bear down on the lannister troops like that was just an amazing thing to watch and and to extrapolate that even further to what you're describing sounds so exciting and and what you describe brings so many threads together in such an interesting way. I'm just like, I'll, I'll be disappointed if George doesn't do your version of Field of Fire. Well, thank you. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's high praise. Specifically, yeah. the Golden Company has battle elephants. Yeah. And watching those go up against the Dothraki and the dragons would just be... Because that's where, I mean, obviously Martin always talks about his love for Tolkien, but that's where he's going to go full Pelennor Field. Yes. Oh, sure. In a way, and then Legolas is going to go surfing to down a trunk and it's just going to be exactly. great. Oh, I love it. It's going to be perfect. Um, all right. Uh, is it my turn? Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. Um, so, uh, you know, something that, um, I, I think that I really care about knowing is what George plays to do with Dorne. Um, I really like what you said earlier, Emmett, about, um, uh, the way in which George likes to set up these false heroes only to just like knock them off the board and you're like, ah, but I was watching that. What? Um, you know, because like exactly. that's that's what's so interesting about like Rob Stark and Ned Stark and all that sort of things. And there's only so many times he can do rug pull and surprise us. So it might be that Ariane and Dorne and all of that is going to be just like another rug pull. But he created such a rich world on the page um, and it was so badly done by the show mm-hmm. um, that it, that is the part, you know, as George teased in that blog post that I quoted earlier, like that is the part of Winds and, and the Dream of Spring that I am most interested to see, even if it does end up being like one big, it doesn't matter, or they all burn up on the field of fire or whatever it is. Um, and then the other thing that I want to talk about is this notion of the three dragon riders, which is something that I think we all felt like we had a fairly strong mm-hmm. bead on this idea that, you know, Daenerys obviously rides dragons. Jon Snow would probably ride a dragon. Who's the third dragon rider? Is it Tyrion? Is it, is it Bran? We have all these different theories. Um, do our thoughts about that change now <laughs> that the show has given us um, an undead dragon. Are we going to see an undead dragon in the book? We already talked about that a little bit, but I think what feels 
true. Um, and maybe this is the third question mark. Oh shit moment. Um, but I don't think it is. I think I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on, but like, uh, a redux of the dance with dragons feels like inevitable. It feels like we're going to see dragon on dragon action, whether that is, as you mentioned, like a dragon driven insane by a horn or controlled by a horn or, uh, worked into or what it is, whatever it is. I am like again, interested. Cause I, I have to confess that until, Viserion went down on the show, I did not think about dragon versus dragon uh, because I didn't believe in the horn. So, you know, maybe that's that's my fault. But um, but that this just opens up a whole bunch of different possibilities. And what seems I was so certain that Tyrion would be a dragon rider and I feel so certain he's not now. (laughs) Um, And that's I mean, maybe maybe he is and maybe. But like, once again, it's, it's that subversion of expectations. Like there's so much in the show, in the books pointing to Tyrion being a dragon rider but isn't that like you know he believes he deserves to have a dragon so isn't that exactly why like he won't ever have one you know uh given George's fondness for rug pulling so these are just like I don't know I don't have like a great theory like um you guys do about what will happen but I I have more questions than I used to and that's thanks to developments on the show if that makes any sense uh, and then the last thing, the very last thing that's near and dear to my heart I want to talk about is Jamie and Brienne. Um, you know, as we I've, as we've talked about in throughout this episode, uh, the Cersei versus Jamie thing is not probably what's going to be the biggest part of his story uh, in the books. It might be like a final thread that he has to cut. But, you know, what's frustrating to me, and I, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say something that an actor told me, because it's not a spoiler. He just sort of, when I talked to Nicola Coaster-Waldo, he implied that even though Jamie has gone north at the end of season seven, um, he might not be done with Cersei. And I was mm. just like, why? No. Like, <laughs> like question. this is, this happened so much earlier in the books that, that, that Jamie is done with Cersei. And so like really the show, the show seems to think that Jamie and Cersei is the most interesting thing that you can do with those Lannister characters. And I think if they really, really looked at what they've done so far, Jamie at his most interesting is Jamie and Bran. Like that's Jamie at his most interesting. And I don't say that as a shipper. Like it's not <laughs> about even it's not even really about that because these are two like, you know, knights in certain in a certain view. So it's more like a chivalric sort of thing that I'm interested in and just their dynamic. And so the fact that they are um more their paths are more strongly connected in the books versus like send Brian North to stare at a Winterfell tower for an entire goddamn season, <laughs> you know, uh, is exciting to me to see where that goes. I think that's, yeah, I think that's, that's a fascinating point you bring up is that they might have misdirected their focus because I, like I said earlier, some of the strongest moments from season six are those moments where G, where Jamie is in the Riverlands and that Jamie and Brienne scene in the tent uh, from, I think it's episode six, maybe seven uh, from season six, and then progressing onwards to when Brienne leaves River Run and you have Jamie looking at her and Patrick Payne as they sail off and raising his hand was a very touching, meaningful moment that seemed very much pointed towards Jamie and Brienne being a much more stronger endpoint for, for both of their arcs. And I, I, I'll admit it. I'm, I'm a shipper of I'm, I'm a Bramy shipper, if you want to call it that. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy their storyline. I think there's hint, hints both in books and the show that they're 
they'll end up being together at, at some point, or at least they'll bang at, at some point. Um, I, I do. I, I mean, what, the other thing, though, too, is, I mean, when, when Nikolai said that about season eight, I, I get it because the other part that George has built up and seemingly that David and Dan have built up too is that there's a growing animosity between Jamie and Cersei. And in the books, there's the Valencar theory, which is that Brienne will be, or not Brienne, but that J- Jamie will be the one who will strangle Cersei and kill her, will be the ulti- one who ultimately kill her, which does, I, I think, will pan out both in books and show because that does feel like something that they're building towards. I mean, there's a growing sense of alienation between the two twins. Um, the romantic relationship has effectively ended since season four and since really since the start of Feast for Crows in the books. And even though Jamie is thinking about Brienne, even as late as A Dance with Dragons, he does have this line in, in Dance where he thinks about going back to Cersei and King's Landing and, and thinks about that as kind of something that he, he's looking forward to. He might not feel that way after he encounters the Brother Without Banners and Stoneheart and so forth in The Winds of Winter. But again, as for all these things, we, I, we are going to have to see. I think the Valencar theory is still on, but I also still think that Jamie and Brienne is a endpoint for them and is a stronger relational connection between the two characters in both show and books. Yeah, I mean, Jamie's final showdown with Cersei is something that maybe has to happen, but I completely agree with Joanna that's not Jamie's endpoint. It's not what it's building to. It's something that got passed. And that, yeah, Jamie and Brienne really come alive as characters when you put them together because they challenge each other in such interesting ways. And, yeah, I want to see much more of that, especially since both the actors do such a great job. Yes. In isolation, but especially with each other. Absolutely. Like, there are some scenes that I feel like I watch Nicolai Cosaraldo perform where I'm like, he's so bored. <laughs> and then there's some yeah. scenes where I'm like, oh, he's awake today. And, like, he's always <laughs> awake for a Gwendolyn Christie scene, yes. you know? So, like, um, and he's one, I'm, Jamie Lannister is one of my favorite characters. Nicolai Cosaraldo, I think, is maybe one of the most talented uh, and underrated actors on the show. Hmm. Uh, but, like, that's just because he's been, I think, you know, once again, like to hear actors be frustrated. I think he's frustrated that he's been stuck in this circular plot and they like they sent him to Dorne and they just have all this shit happening with, you know, he constantly goes back to Cersei. So how can your character progress if he keeps just relapsing into this bad decision? So anyway, I'm, I Jamie in the books is something I'm very, very intensely interested in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then finally, Look, we, we've talked about this before, but R plus L equals J was revealed on the show, and it's fucking happening in the books, and you deserve the lake of fucking fire if you think otherwise. All agreed? Agreed. I can't agreed. believe you have, like, listeners who would disagree. Do you? Uh, maybe one, two. Okay. <laughs> they're they're out there. I pity them. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, like, it, it, it's clear from the show that this is something that Martin intended, and if you listen to the audio commentary for... Season six, episode 10, uh, I believe it was Benioff who said that this was the thing that got them the role of being the showrunners for Game of Thrones was the they're telling George that they knew who Jon Snow's parents were, that they were Rhaegar and, and Lyanna. So keep your bad theories to yourself. It's, it's, they said it's that canon. before. It's the, like, they said that before that reveal. Like they've been saying it for a long or I thought they'd been saying it for a long time. And definitely there's that one video where I believe mm. it's Benioff is wearing a polo that says R, that has R plus L equals J stitched <laughs> on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> where the like Ralph Lauren like polo horse should be. Uh, so, you know, I've, I like this is I'm sorry. Let's all get on board. It's the defining twist of the story. It's literally in the title of the series. Yeah. It, it's the only way that Ned's 
Ned Stark's character really makes any sense. Yes. Like, I don't, yeah, this, this should be beyond dispute by now. So, yeah. Much as I don't like to condemn people to the lake of brimstone, I think I'll do it in this case. <laughs> Sorry, lake of fire. I don't know. I don't know how you Christians talk. Uh, it's it's a lake of fire. and the, Yeah. The field of food, nah, food nah. trucks. <laughs> the field of food trucks. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> All right, so finally, we do know that there is one final holy shit moment that George R. Martin revealed to David Benioff and Dan Weiss in 2013 in that meeting in that Santa Fe hotel. Uh, the first two moments were ones that we talked about earlier, Stan Burns, Shireen, and that Hodor beans hold the door. So I figure kind of to kind of close everything out, so I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to us talk for now, probably two and a half hours uh, at this point. So let's put our cards on the table. What is the final holy shit moment that we're going to see in season eight? For me, it, it's very simple. Sansa's pregnant with Ramsay's child. Um, <laughs> is it that you wanted Why? to hear Why, what it would sound like if steam came out of my ears uh, like all, uh, next to a microphone? I mean, is I, because I, you were curious about that? I do sense that the room that I'm in right now has gotten considerably hotter. Like I feel like there's kind of a fire building from where are you sending something in my way from from over on your side of the country? <laughs> it's a shadow baby on its way for you. <laughs> Jeff is a changeling, you see. He was he's actually from a family of trolls. He was raised by humans. That's how I explain him. No, no. But for real, no, buddy. For, for real, I, I think that the, the final... I, I mean, uh, I'll put two two out here. Uh, I think that one is more probable to happen in the show, and that's... The one I think is not probable to happen in the show, but has been theorized that's going to happen in the books, is that Arya Stark will die, and then will be live on forever in Nymeria. I think that's something that is possible. I mean, I mean, I talked about that back in, like, episode six or seven of, of, the, of the regular cast, about whether that's a possibility. Um, but I, I think the one that's more likely and more probable is that Daenerys, Targaryen, and Drogon will die, probably in some sort of sacrificial way to save humanity or save the people that she cares about, whether that's Jon Snow, Bran, uh, some of the other characters in her storyline. I think that's that's something that's going to be playing out, and that's going to be the final holy shit moment. So that's that's my card on the table. I'm going to go with Stannis comes back from the dead and saves the dead. <laughs> <laughs> Not to not to copy Jeff too much, but I gotta agree. I think Danny and Drogon going down is the most likely one, both in books and show, because it seems to make intuitive sense. I think to a lot of people that the dragons are gonna go down along with or at the same time as the others, that the principal magical forces of ice and fire are gonna be wiped out in some sort of equilibrium at the end, and in the books maybe this will correspond to a change in the season, so they do you know, are the normal lengths once more. And Daenerys herself has been so associated with the dragons and is constantly talking about how the dragons are part of her and kind of represent her and are her children and her soul and her legacy that I imagine she will share their fate or at least Drogon's fate. So I, I would probably have to agree with you, sir. Yeah. On the one hand, like, I I don't think we're headed for a uh, John and Danny live happily ever after and raise their baby, uh, you know, <laughs> to sit on the Iron Throne or whatever. <laughs> Excuse me, <coughs> coughing on my own self-righteousness that's about to ensue. <laughs> but on the other hand, I uh, I don't like this idea of like a Nisa Nisa sort of like repeat of mm-hmm. like Daenerys has to die so that Jon Snow can be triumphant. You know what I mean? Which sure. like, yeah. I'm not, you guys aren't necessarily making, drawing that line, but that's, there's just such like a, 
bad taste in my mouth at the thought of that. Um, if they both die, I'm I'm super down with that. But if like <laughs> if she dies so that he can like be victorious, that's 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 hard for me to <laughs> contemplate. So yeah, I really hope that's not played straight. If it does happen, if there is some kind of this and this is scene with John and Danny, I hope it's presented as horrible and like something that is just emotionally fraught we're not supposed to be cheering for but more than even more than that i agree with you i hope it just doesn't happen yeah um all right so i will say mine which like i'm uh, i'm trying to like think if this is really an oh shit moment it'd be an oh shit moment for a show who who qualified it that way weiss and benioff right not george yeah it was benioff and weiss who qualified as an oh shit okay because their definition would be different from like people super familiar with the books (laughs) of of like what an oh shit you know twist would be um so I'm going to go plant my flag on like Tyrion breaking super bad and hmm. doing something um, irredeemable. Um, and that's, you know, the show has followed him and the books have followed him. And like what's interesting is that the show has been reluctant to take Tyrion as dark as he is in the books. Right. You know, yes. um, so they've gentled him on the show. And one reason they might do that is to make an inevitable like twist um feel more shocking because they love Weiss and Benioff love a shock they love to feel like they got one over on us you know what I mean um <laughs> but I feel like uh you know a major betrayal of some kind is coming would it be an ocean like oh crazy I never saw that coming in the book with all the like darkness we've been seeing from Tyrion maybe not but in terms of the show I think it could be so that's where I would I would put my my flag yeah, I like that. That's a great distinction to be made between what it would be a surprise in the books versus the show. That would definitely land with more of a shock in the show. I'll uh, I'll cut this out of out of the uh, the episode itself. But oh. I have, and Joanna, you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I have seen. Yeah, I I think that's uh definitely an interesting idea about Tyrion betraying the, the heroes of, uh, of the show. I think I, I am curious. I, I, again, like you said in the books, Tyrion is, is very dark in a dance with dragons and he's going down, continues to go down dark paths, even as we see in some of the released sample chapters for the winds of winter, where he's fantasizing about killing Penny and, you know, thinking about, you know, trying to like shout some sense into her, but at the same time thinking that she's resembling Shay, who he murdered and thinks about, oh, if only I had a chain, I could like strangle her and stuff like that. You're like, whoa, like this is like super fucking dark Tyrion. Not that Tyrion was necessarily uh, on the on the on the side of good and, and righteousness uh, before that moment from the winds of winter, but definitely a, a sense that Tyrion's darkness is not necessarily ended even into the winds of winter. And even as he's experienced some changes in his demeanor and his outlook, uh, in his, in his, mostly in his interactions with Penny in the, in the books. Agreed. Well, I think that just about wraps us up. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening to our first holiday special on how much of Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring were spoiled by Game of Thrones Season 6 and 7. And thank you so much, Joanna, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, and thanks for, I don't know, listening to all my rants. They're great. <laughs> They're awesome. Shaw. Yeah, we're, we're, so where, where can we find the, uh, the things that you do? So you do the things. Where can we find those things? Uh, I have a couple podcasts, so if you're not already tired of the sound of my voice, you can hear me talk about other things on uh, 
the uh, not about Game of Thrones right now, but usually about Game of, sometimes about Game of Thrones on the Storm of Spoilers podcast. <laughs> uh, a Cast of Kings is another Game of Thrones podcast that I do. Um, I do a number of other podcasts. Still watching is a TV pod, general TV podcast that I do. We will be doing some Game of Thrones content soon. Uh, I've got a couple Westworld podcasts. Decoding Westworld is one of them. And then mm. finally, I've got an award season podcast called The Little Gold Men. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, and you can find me on VanityFair.com. Yeah, I, I have to say that I, I enjoyed Decoding Westeros more than West well, Decoding Westeros Decoding Westworld more than than actual Westworld season two. So that was a lot of fun to listen to you guys. Same. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, as always, you are welcome to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, any place you find your podcast. We really appreciate you guys' reviews. We do read all of your reviews. They're excellent, except for the ones that give us one stars and call us soy boys. But they're kind of funny, all the same. Rude. Accurate, but rude. <laughs> uh, in terms of social media, as always, you can follow us at Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. As we said earlier, check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiaf. You can find me on Twitter at PoorQuentin or my blog at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics, fire.wordpress.com. So, as always, join us in our regular cast as we head down the home stretch of A Game of Thrones and on into A Clash of Kings, which is going to be great. We finally get Stannis, which is going to, we're going to be totally fucking insufferable at that point. Um, yes. And then, as, as, as Mehmet mentioned, we do have a Patreon where you can listen to our monthly Patreon cast, where you can always find us talking about our bullshit. And one of the things we wanted to mention here, uh, for those of you who are patrons of ours, we did decide to make Fire and Blood a part two and part three as opposed to simply a part two. So part two is going to cover the Dance of the Dragons or the Dying of the Dragons as it's listed in the Fire and Blood. And part three will cover the Regency period of Aegon Third. So we're really looking forward to talking about those and bringing those to you guys way here in a few weeks or a few days now that you're listening to this on the 21st of December. So we appreciate it. So thank you very much. Yeah, we're pulling uh, Peter Jackson's The Hobbit on that one in terms of trying to make it two, but... <laughs> We just have too much material, so it's going to be three. So we hope you're still interested in our stories about the wonderful, terrible Targaryens. Um, I'm going to be honest and say I have not even finished Fire and Blood. It's such a dense volume. I'm just kind of picking my way through it when I have time. But I uh, really had fun recording part one. So hopefully you guys like part part two and part three. And as Jeff says, we're coming down the home stretch of the Game of Thrones. So you can look forward to us finally getting to Ned's downfall, the zombie attack at the wall, everything going crazy in the storyline, all that good stuff. So thanks for listening and we will see you guys next week or next time on Patreon.